0: Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from, Outer, from Outer, Space. Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1508 to 1521. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1508 Oil, Germs, and Iron Written by Grand Admiral 98 Humanity What an interesting species, special at times, ordinary at times, ruthless at times, merciful at times. Its people are moronic, wise, intelligent, stupid, brave, cowardly, honorable, crooked, much like every other species in the universe. For a long time, people have claimed that it was something with humanity itself. Look at how they conquered the galaxy, people say. Tell me of another race which did that, people argued. But if you would bear with me, ask yourself, did other species not also rise to the same heights? The Yurili invented Warp Trouble 50,000 years before humanity. They could have conquered the galaxy when it was in its infancy. The Jothral, even to this day, holds some of the leading posts in the sciences. The Hologree have the greatest and widest economic network, and the Gulf Order have the largest spy network, and all but one came to the stars long before humanity, and humanity itself is not any more or less special as a species as any of these. So what happened? How did humanity of all the creatures in the cosmos rise to such prominence? To discuss this, we must first begin by describing the thing that pushed humanity over the edge into space travel. Oil and coal. Hydrocarbons of the highest quality found naturally in their soil. This discovery led to their first industrial revolution, which single-handedly propelled the species 2,000 years into their future accomplishing in two centuries a level of technological competency and curiosity not seen in any species which did not have such a rapid advance. Hardly a reason in itself for their prominence. After all, few species have had such a leap, but those who had an equivalent leap did not conquer the galaxy. The humans did. However, this was not the sole reason for their advancement. It was what happened as a result of this. They were propelled into a region of the galaxy which needed a stabilizing force. The main powers at the time, the Ureli and the Hologri, were competing for a slice of this arm. However, it was too far from their home worlds to initiate a war over it. So tension grew and grew, and lo and behold, a new contestant enters colonizing space owned by both of them. By the time negotiations came, both of the Great Powers agreed to let the humans exist, so long as they would give them a part of the resources. In return, they could have an entire contested space. For the Great Powers, the Cold War had simply changed to a far more manageable front. Human politics instead of planets and stars. This put humanity in an incredibly privileged position where both of these great powers were throwing resources at it. However, both had misread humanity. Specifically, the amount of power the government had over its citizens. Almost none. A government which gains too much too quickly cannot manage everything after all. And this government had gained billions of stars in a single deal. The powers hoped that this would destabilize the Earth's government enough that they could take control over it. Now, a few of you may be laughing at the last sentence to explain to our readers who don't know so much about human history. The powers gained full control of Earth's government. It was little more than a puppet, but that government did not have the power, the bureaucracy, the interest, or the capacity to control anything beyond its home system which meant that all the good wishes the old powers had gained had been to control space which could only be controlled by human star states, local star system governments which barely listened to Earth. Now, you may be thinking, why, after all? The Galaforda also lived in a similar state on the other corner of the galaxy. They gained territory and the central government kept at least some semblance of power. Well Once again, oil. Oil allowed them to advance technologically without the need for centralized their society. Technological advances were accelerated, but societal advances were kept going at the same pace. This means that human society at the 21st century would have been nanotechnology before even post-continental governments. Oil made them unpredictable. But if it were only oil, they would not have gotten much further. The next issue was far more devastating. Humanity had evolved beyond the confines of their world and had earned a place among galactic society. Stuck in a cold war. But now there needed to be something more, something which could turn everything around. From the title of this piece, you may have already deduced what it was. Germs. Now, other worlds had parasites, viruses, bacteria, and extremophiles, of course. But the cause of the extreme condition of those on Earth were the same as the extinction of the creatures which created their oil. A horrendously changeable climate. These bacteria and parasites could metabolize anything they encountered. Generally, a virus from one species rarely ever damages another. It is just one of the facts of life in the universe. Unfortunately, no one told Earth that rule. All life in the universe has some sort of carbon double helix DNA after all, and though the specifics change, it is simply the most capable method of reproduction for complex life. This means that it is possible, in theory, to have a virus which could hop between species... Although in practice, this would mean that the virus would have to replicate itself multiple trillions of times with the right conditions and the right contact to do so. Nothing could do so naturally or artificially on any world, besides Earth, that is. The virus itself was the cold, the, by far, most adaptable of human viruses. You may recognize that the name remained unchanged throughout the centuries. What the humans named after a slight increase in their temperature, which causes them to feel cold, became the name for the cold embrace of death that it caused in other species. The effects were devastating. The virus became airborne, making containment almost impossible once on a planet. It was tiny, able to pass through most air filters. It had an incredibly short lifespan, making it exceedingly adaptable. It could lay dormant for weeks, making it almost undetectable. And, most importantly, it had adapted its DNA to attach to any DNA-based life, making it able to jump across species, destroying the cell structure and replacing it with their own. Most species had a 99% fatality rate, including the two main powers at the time. Some had as little as 40%. Still debilitating. Of course, the virus did eventually turn back on the humans, but even the new form only had a 0.01% fatality rate on them, negligible compared to the rest of the galaxy. I will spare you most of the details which you most likely have heard in primary school, but the great cold swept across the galaxy. Before it was even detected, It had already infected 15 Euryli and 23 Hologri planets. By the same time, its scope was revealed that numbers had squared, and it started to infect the smaller races as well. By the time the quarantine was established, well over 5,500 Euryli and 8,000 Hologri worlds had been infected. But it would not stop, because of the airborne nature and the fact that it wasn't immediately identifiable as well as its high ineffectivity and lethality. Millions of ships now unknowingly carried the virus in their crews. Both empires were doomed. None had any natural resistance and no drug. Machine or poison could fight it. Some of the smaller species had a high rate of survival, but they were generally few and far between. Humans soon became the go-to person for any job because of their immunity to the disease. They became the wealthiest of all the nations, the most powerful, with tendrils in every corporation and government in the galaxy. It was suspected that the humans were responsible, of course, but no one could do anything. They needed people to work the ships and factories. The services left behind after entire worlds were emptied. The Great Cold lasted strongly for 30 years, then quieted down to a lower lethality rate for another 150 years before disappearing. We don't know exactly what happened, most likely the disease rampaged through the susceptible population at such a pace that only those resistant survived. If you forgive the pun, the cold essentially burnt itself out, but what it left behind was devastating. Ninety percent of the galaxy was dead. Seventy percent of all inhabited worlds were abandoned. Most cities were nothing more than well-kept ruins. A side effect of this were that automation became the new norm in almost every industry, and that new powers would come to be. The Ureli could not maintain any semblance of control when they had been reduced from a population of 86 quadrillion to 71 billion. Nor could the Hologrilli, really, who went from a population of 145 quadrillion to 340 billion. Their empires shoveled away. But in their place, new powers arose. The first amongst these were the Gulf Order, the spy masters of the galaxy, losing only 70% of their population the Jafral losing only 50% of their population, and of course, the humans, losing 0.01% of their population. Though this made them the equal of the Gulf Order, of these, the Gulf Order had the largest territory, able to build and maintain it through their incredible use of subterfuge, for which they became known. Second in size, but not in influence, were the humans with their comparatively spread-out population, supplemented with colonial cloning to a population of 60 trillion, with now fully developed worlds from both predecessor powers under their control. The Jaffrel never expanded, but still held a vast influence over the economics of the galaxy. But still, this would have paved the way for a new equilibrium, one where these powers existed. This alone did not give humans the galaxy. There was one last thing. Iron. Two types of iron. That in the core of their planets, making it heavier and with some more massive magnetic field than almost any other world. And the iron in their blood, a product of a rich planet that they evolved from, making them capable of metabolizing oxygen far better than any other species in the galaxy. The first gave them an incredible strength and endurance compared to other species, though this may seem a null point in warfare, primarily located in space. It allowed them to face greater threats in the past, and required far more advanced military tactics than almost any other species. It also allowed the use of boarding parties, which became very effective in the human campaigns. Poetically referred to as the War of the Orphans, by the remnants of the old powers, and unpoetically referred to as the Great Human Spanking, by enthusiastic human commanders. The second advantage was the iron in their blood. This means that they metabolized oxygen well enough that they could live almost anywhere. And they did. Every planet they conquered was capable of housing humans and growing their crops, The galaxy was theirs for the taking. In the end, humans were without question the undisputed power in the galaxy, having 80% of it under their direct influence, possessing 70% of its production, of which 40% is human. But this number is growing. 75% of its GDP, 90% of its military, and more. But do remember what was said Humans are not intrinsically better in any way than other species. They have the awesome luck of living on a world which was able to create history's greatest conquerors. We are communicating in the human tongue, after all. Though, this is the end of my piece. I want you to imagine what the galaxy would have looked like if your world had possessed the same oil, germs, and iron. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1509 Vending Machines Written by Fools Like Me Practically alone in space and surrounded by stars, unobscured by any atmosphere, a tired, weary man piloted his small craft onwards. He used one of his massive hands and, with a practiced motion, manipulated some levers on the dashboard. The ship's navigational lights flashed and it approached what appeared to be one-room outposts situated in an irregularly shaped hunk of space rock. Moving slowly, the ship shuddered as the loading arm clamped onto the hull and the main bay doors docked and sealed with the station. All green lights indicated the station was receiving power from the ship and the dock was successful. The pilot sighed. As he leaned back in his too small chair and wrapped his knuckles on the cockpit door, signaling his co-worker. Static scratched as the intercom clicked. A cheery female voice said, Welcome to Unmanned Station J37. You are now clear to unbuckle your safety belt and move about the vessel. We'll be docking here for one hour before we continue on our tour to the majestic rings of Saturn. The last bit was said with an extra enthusiasm. Cassidy raised the intercom mic back in his mount. The passengers began to mill about and stretch. It had taken a little longer than normal to cross the empty space from Jupiter, and she was running out of trivia and moon puns. Soon, passengers were putting on their environmental suits. Others already had theirs on and were waiting by the door. Cassidy adjusted the temperature setting on her suit then smiled and walked over to the decompressing chamber. Could the first six guests, please, step inside? She pleasantly asked. Two crystal irons stepped in, along with a spindly danard and three hairy gorths. Cassidy pressed a button which flashed yellow and held a steady green, indicating that the systems were nominal and that the weight limit had not been exceeded. The gorths muttered to themselves and gently pushed each other as they spoke. The Arons stood in stoic silence. The I only spoke telepathically. And the Donard stared at both the Gauls and his tour guide carefully, with his lidless eyes. Cassidy suppressed a shudder and said with a smile, Because this is an unmanned station, there is no atmosphere in sight and the station is powered by our ship's generator. However, the vending machine should be able to provide most food, drink, and other amenities. Please uh, brace yourself while I decompress the chamber. Cassidy inserted a small key into a lock. Then, while pressing a ready button, turned the key to depressurize. The wind rushed immediately around everyone's faces with a roar of sound that was quickly replaced by a deafening silence. The guide hit the button to open the outer door. The six beings stepped into the drab open room. They looked around, but there was almost nothing to see. The floor was metal. The ceiling was metal. Even the walls were made metal. There were no windows at all. The only thing of note were an array of dispensers set against three of the walls. Cassidy, who had stayed where she was, keyed into the proper radio channel and said, The two vending machines on the left offer food-grade organics and non-food-grade organics. Note that the non-food-grade organics dispenser is colored orange for clarity, she smiled. "'If you're sick of space food, now's your opportunity to try some human cuisine. "'I've been hungry for a cheeseburger myself.' "'Cassidy chuckled to herself, but was met with blank stares. "'She cleared her throat and continued, "'The three dispensers across the room from me are plastics, metals, and carbon, "'with plastics on the left and carbon on the right. "'The gauze and irons were staring quizzically at the dispensers on the wall. "'The Danid, however, looked increasingly confused.' as he glanced from the dispenser to the tour guide. Cassidy continued, The remaining three vending machines are for engineers and ship technicians in the need of a quick repair, but uh, I don't imagine we'll be... The Dan had cut in. How does the food dispenser work exactly? He had been asking her questions about all manner of things since the tour began. It got old fast when she realized he was high-strung and a bit dim. Well... You just input what you're looking for on the display, and if it's in the database, you put in your credit pin and... No, 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 no. How do you make a cheeseburger with a nutrient paste dispenser? Oh! Cassidy laughed to herself again. I don't really claim to know how these things work, but it does a lot more than nutrient paste. And if you notice, the station seems a little smaller on the inside. It's because there's a lot of machinery behind these walls. This time, one of the golf spoke. We weren't aware of such technology existed. Cassidy felt a presence touch her mind. It felt as though the lodge of the Arons was about to say something. Then it spoke to her mind. Surely these machines are just a novelty. More conventional manufacturing is much cheaper than this kind of fabrication, and inter space travel is relatively cheap. But what is a novelty doing out here? A look of mild unease on the faces of the Gauls and the Danid indicated that they got the same mental message. She replied, ''I guess humanity always considered replicators to be something that a futuristic civilization just has. Of course, one machine that does it all is impossible, but the dispensers in this outpost is pretty standard. You could find something like this in most public buildings and offices. Some people even have them in their homes.'' She paused suddenly, remembering the other passengers on the ship. "'I have to escort the other passengers now, but if you are curious about the vending machines, just give them a whirl, and have a sti—' The Danner interrupted again. "'How many organic compounds are kept here? How often is the station resupplied? Uh, I don't know,' Cassidy said. "'Have a—' "'But why are these seemingly a feat of engineering in a backwater part of the solar system? Have—' "'Wait, I have one more question.' Cassidy quickly burnt out, "'Have still a time!' The door between her and the Danard suddenly closed with a schnick. Alone in the decompression chamber, Cassidy counted to ten and let her shoulders relax. This wasn't the most stress-free job, but at least the alien tourism paid the bills. She let herself have a couple more moments before she repressurized the chamber. On the other side of the door, the Danard shook his head. "'Humans!' he shrugged. He turned to go inspect the food dispenser— but the Goths had already huddled around it. He peered over the heads of the shorter gulfs. Evidently, one of them had already input something into the display. The floor began vibrating. The Danit couldn't hear it, though, until he put a hand on the wall, then a high-pitched thrum could be felt through his fingers. They all waited as a group until the vibration stopped. A small light flashed three times and the metal door slid open. You could almost hear... The ding. Inside the compartment was a plate with a pile of something yellow and lumpy, two thin red strips of probably meat, and two pieces of what looked like baked goods. On the other plate were several gelatinous orange crescents. The display read Breakfast Meal number 2, and Dan had thought that it looked disgusting. The fattest of the Gauls picked up one of the orange crescents and held it between two fingers. He inspected it closely then gave it a small squeeze. Evidently, he was brimming with juice. The goths got most of the juice on him, but a little bit squirted over his shoulder and onto the faceplate of the Danis helmet. Ah! The Danis screamed as he fell backwards. Hmm. The goth mused. Interesting. It looks like it printed a gelatin structure and then filled it with juice. But how did it get the walls so thin? Another asked. Over on the other wall, one of the errands had picked up an item from the plastic display, and the machine was busy printing something. The goths turned back to the food-grade organics machine, and the larger one selected something from a different sub-menu. The Dannard had tried to wipe the sticky substance off of his faceplate, but he left plenty of streaks. Through the blurriness, he could make out the words sponge cake on the display. On the other side of the room, one of the Arons was retrieving something from the plastic spin. It looked like a puzzle box that was covered in little colored squares. The Aron rotated one third of the box, changing the pattern of squares. The two Arons shared a look, probably mentally discussing the puzzle. Meanwhile, the Gauls were talking about their food. Maybe it has all the ingredients in tanks, one said. It would need thousands of tanks to do that. I'm telling you it assembles the food from basic macronutrients, the other said. Now that's not enough, Variety, I bet. It uses a hundred or so dehydrated nutrient and flavor powders, and then it reconstitutes them into organic structure. The Dunnard started to say, I think... A crackle of static on the radio interrupted them. They all looked at each other, confused. Then they turned to look at the radio unit mounted on the exterior door of the ship. No attention, guests. Cassidy's strained voice could be heard through the static. We seem to be having a problem with the ship's electronics, and I won't be able to bring any more guests to the station until we fix it. Please remain calm and... Before she could say anything else, the sound went out. The ceiling light burned brighter and brighter, then burst, and the room was plunged into darkness. The only source of light was a small indicator light on each of the six environmental suits. The Danit began hyperventilating into his radio mic. Oh gods, we're trapped. What are we going to do? I can't even see. We're going to die here. Do not panic, the Aaron said in a strong mental message. We may be able to fashion a light source using the vending machines. The smaller call spoke up. I doubt any of these machines can print luminescent diodes. The mental presence of the Yaron was felt again. We may have to rely on a more primitive technology. An image of a thin glowing wire was transmitted to the others. The crystal being began to lumber over, as evidenced by her suits indicator light and her heavy footfalls, to the third wall of vending machines that no one had touched yet. They were labeled secondary fine metals, and engineering fluids. At the circuitry vending machine, she tapped the display. It glowed weakly, enough to read it, but not enough to illuminate anything. She requested a simple circuit with some open leads. She then started scrolling through the display looking for something else. She mentally frowned and thought to the others, There are no batteries. The Danik groaned, Trapped! One gold stepped forward. I think I may have a way around that. He stepped towards the metals display and began scrolling through it. The Aaron walked to the fine metals display. First, she selected the smallest diameter spring and the machine could offer, then she selected tungsten as a material. Meanwhile, the Danard and the other Aaron and the two Gauls were waiting nervously in the dark. The light from the circuitry machine flashed three times, briefly illuminating the room with each flash. The door slid up, revealing a small plastic boat which the Aaron picked up. Having finalized his selection and the metals machine, the Gorth walked over to the fine metals display and began looking through the magnetized sub-menu. In little under ten minutes, both machines had finished printing, and the Aaron and the Gorth had successfully assembled a small device with a large crank attached to one end. The Danad who couldn't really see anything through his helmet in the low light said, How is that supposed to work? The Gorth sighed, handed the device to the larger Gorth and said, Hold this tightly. Then he began turning the crank, slowly at first, then faster. The spring which had been wedged between two metal tabs began to glow orange. The light was dim, but it was enough. The group visibly relaxed, their situation a little less unnerving, ''Now what?'' the Danad asked. ''We wait, I guess,'' said the Goth. ''Oh.'' The group waited for hours, each taking turns cranking the makeshift light and using the vending machines to get snacks. They talked some, but mostly they sat in silence and waited for their rescue. A strong vibration startled the group, and the Danad jumped up. ''We're saved!'' He ran to the door and waited expectantly. The rest of the group was hesitant. A ghost says, The radio hasn't come back on. The Danner gasped, No, they wouldn't leave us. He put his hands on the door to try and feel if something was happening on the other side. The door vibrated to his left. Then the vibration started coming in pulses. The Danner backed away. Suddenly, bright light streamed through one side of the door. It's opening. "'Shouted the Danard. "'As the gap got wider, it became apparent that the light was coming from a hunched form "'who was slowly but surely cracking the door open. "'All the group could do was watch. "'With the door fully open, the hunched form stood up to reveal the mountain of a man "'wearing an environmental suit with a bright shoulder-mounted light. "'The decompression chamber behind him was a mess of open panels and pulled out wires.' None of the light-up displays appearing to be working. The group stood back as the man walked into the room. They could do nothing but stare at his intimidating presence. He turned his shoulder light towards each wall, scanning, then stepped towards the circuitry machine. With large fingers, he punched something into the display and waited. Less than a minute later, the circuitry panel opened and the man retrieved what appeared to be a small fuse. He walked back towards the chamber and squatted down next to one of the open panels. Delicately fitted the fuse into the unseen circuit board. Immediately, the displays lit up, numbers scrolling rapidly with various lights flashing in apparent alarm. The man began to gesture to the six silent tourists, but thought better of it. Bikiri's radio mic. We are sorry for the delay, he said in an accent. Even the translation couldn't smooth out. Decompression chamber, blue fuse and isolated station from ship. Please step in chamber, we will go back inside. The six beings said nothing as they filed into the chamber. The door closed behind them with a schnick, and a moment later the air began rushing into the chamber, bringing with it the sounds of many alarms. Do not be concerned, everything is fine, the man said. The Danid managed to work up the courage to ask, Who are you? I at the pilot. The doors opened. As the Dan had found his way back to the seat, he thought, this is what I get for vacationing in a newly inducted stellar system. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1510. Story number one. The Mad Butchers of Terror. Written by Vincea Ortmarai. They are mad, I tell you. All of them, lunatic monsters from your worst nightmares. And the stoutest allies, the most compassionate friends you have ever known, all rolled into one. We learned that during the war, but too late. Far, far too late. The Montrell were the first species to form. Their brood worlds were the closest occupied planets to the Sol System, at the outbreak of the war. When the first counterattack came, the Prime Minister of the Montreal Union had sworn that not one living Terran would ever touch the surface of the Montreal world. In the end, that oath was upheld. The Montreal flung themselves at the foe, spending the lives of the indomitable legions in their countless thousands to defend their brood worlds. The Terran capital ships never even ended the system. They disdained the elegant, maneuvering ballet of the void combat for which the Montrol cruisers had been designed. The butchers of terror had simply turned their broadsides towards the oncoming waves and pumped volley after volley into the Montrol ships. It was an ugly sight to watch. Even on the footage from the reconnaissance drones as the Montrol ships Each, a triumph of engineering, were blasted apart by cataclysmic barrages from the ugly slabs of steel and void shielding that constituted the Terran fleet. In nearly a standard galactic year of fighting, the only allied victory during the whole of the Montrol offensive occurred on the outskirts of the Montrol home system. The battle had raged for seven standard rotations without cessation, and by the end, not a single Terran capital ship existed within striking range of Montreal Prime. The Grand Home Fleet of the Montreal Union still proudly patrolled its home system, all three remaining ships of it, at least. Analysis and reconnaissance footage recovered after the battle suggested that the Terran ships had simply run out of ammunition before the Montral had run out of ships. The Terrans never needed to set foot that side. They simply crippled the Montreal. Montral ships were hunted down and eradicated. Their factories razed and their spaceports reduced to rubble with a chilling, systematic efficiency. The Montral Union remained technically unconquered. They simply had no capacity to resist. And the Terrans ran their supply lines through the heart of the sovereign, hostile nation, as safe and sound as if they were cruising their native solar system... The Valaxians, by contrast, were not an ancient, well-established interstellar empire like the Montreal Union. Rather, they'd been a young species just grasping beyond their home system at the outbreak of the war. Their technology had advanced considerably by their entrance to the Allied Pact near the end of the Montreal offensive. But it had taken time to retrofit into their existing systems. That time might have been granted if not the plague. A virus, common enough to the galactic community as a whole, but unknown on Valax, mutated itself enough to attack the Valaxian biology. The virus crippled Valax before the war had really begun. Valax was left practically defenseless as the Allied Pact scrambled to form in the wake of the Montrol defeat. Unable to defend themselves, What was left of the Valaxian High Command surrendered without ever firing a shot. The Terrans did land on Valax. Armies of them, legions, poured from carrier fleets Vulcan and Bacchus. These were not legions of soldiers, but healers. Entire battalions of doctors, nurses, surgeons and battlefield medics came to the aid of the Valaxian people. It took nearly half of the Valaxian orbit to find a vaccine. But eventually, one was found, and the Grand Matriarch of Valax swore from her sickbed in a broadcasted message to her entire people, undying friendship with the healers of terror. It was the fate of the romo Noralians that chilled the blood of every sentient species in the galaxy. Had it been the romo Noralians that had started the war, at the height of their power, they were the mightiest nation amongst the stars, an entity to be feared. Then they found the Sol system. Nine planets ranged round the small yellow star, hosting a minor species of native bipedal sapiens, with bare handful of colonies and neighboring moons, and a single colony on a second world. Under intergalactic law, the Roman Aurelians were well within their rights to lay claim to any system whose native inhabitants had not achieved FTL travel or established a colony outside their native system. The initial incident wasn't even an attack. The outermost colony established by the Terrans up to that point was on a small, barren world, the fourth from their star. With high concentration of iron and very little indigenous water... The Roman Aurelian colony ship entered high orbit, discharging its small complement of soldiers to gather any available biomass in the immediate area to supplement the ship's stores, and commenced terraforming the planet below. The process was considered a success by the Roman Aurelians and a non-issue for the rest of the galaxy. There was a small sortie by the local fleet, but the enemy ships were of such a primitive design that there were no real Threat. The engagement would have been almost bloodless for the Roman Aurelian side, except that a cadet who had been allowed to pilot a strike craft during the engagement made a mistake. He attempted a showy maneuver and collided with one of the Terran vessels, sending them both spinning into the void. The incident was logged as an acceptable loss, and the colony ship went back to terraforming the intended world. It was not until a full solar orbit later that the consequences of that struggle became all too clear. Ships. Dozens of ships appeared from out of the light of the sun, bearing down on the unsuspecting colony ship. The battle, such as it was, was over before the would-be Roman Aurelian colonists could wake up. Their ship was surrounded and blasted apart, without even giving the Roman Aurelians a chance to plead for mercy. The surviving tech from the colony ship was soon assimilated into the newly forged Terran fleet, just as the salvaged strike craft had to be. Then the mad butchers of Terra went hunting. The Montreal hadn't been a target; just a proud ancient empire that stood between Terra and Romano. The Terrans asked for the right of way through their territory when the foolish Montreal attacked. The Balaxians were inconsequential but the mad butchers who could slaughter millions in the grip of the cold, righteous wrath, could not bear the terrified sobs of a sick child. After Valax, the galaxy watched in horrified confusion as the same fleet that crippled an empire and saved a species from extinction bore down on Romano. The destruction was absolute, not merely content in extracting a toll in recompense for what they called the Massacre of Mars. The fleets of terror butchered their way through the mightiest battle fleet in the galaxy, stopping as they did to wipe every inhabited world clean of life. Horrifying as they were, these atrocities were merely an overture to a symphony of destruction that was to come. The home system of the Roman Aurelian Empire was blasted apart, inhabited world by inhabited world and the debris of 13 planets was flung by tractor beams at the Romanoalian home planet. The message broadcast from the Admiral of the Fleet Jupiter proclaimed, The adversary is destroyed. The last of their empire used to obliterate the cradle of their monstrous race. Maybe the war could have ended there. The Terrans had guarded their revenge. They had no more desire to fight. If only we had known that then... Terrified by the unexpected display of raw ferocity, the galaxy united in horror to destroy the sons and daughters of Terror. It didn't work. Species after species either fell or surrendered for the inexorable might of Terror. Those that allied with her live unmolested within their own territory, prospering by trade and peaceful collaboration. Those that resisted have been ground into dust of history. How, I ask you, can one creature be both either, I could understand, but both bloodthirsty conqueror and peaceful ally. They must be mad. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1511. The Demons, written by Heavy Artillery BTR. They came from another universe. Mac... Before the invasion, the galaxy was, for the most part, peaceful. Sure, there may have been one or two wars of conquest, and maybe a planetary genocide here and there. But, by and large, almost everyone respected each other and kept it to themselves. Of course, that changed when they came. No one is sure what exactly caused the bridge between universes to form... The last surviving ancients blame it on the younger species' efforts to develop the most advanced form of faster-than-light technology known, which ripped holes open into the pocket universe shadowing our own. The younger species deny this claim and insist that the ancients' use of this technology themselves caused the rupture. However, this blame game was of little consequence to what came out of the rift. They were energy beings, at least That's what it seemed like as the rest of the galaxy. Only a few know that what could have been seen of them was only a small part of the true forms. When they emerged from the rift, piloting shimmering vessels that seemed to phase in and out of our reality, they did not come in peace. Instead, they saw the galaxy as a new source of food and entertainment. They slew any diplomatic vessel that attempted to contact them, and the ships began pouring out of the portal. The Fenchu Confederation were the first to fall. The monsters from another universe descended upon their worlds, consuming the life force of all living sentient beings that they could find. Once they were done feeding on the Fenchu, the horrors then turned their attention to the rest of the galaxy, hungering and began spreading like a plague. World... After world fell, leaving dead cities filled with dry husks in their wake. The monsters weren't invulnerable, but their numbers were so great that any defensive fleet was simply smashed aside. Soon enough, an entire quadrant of the galaxy had been cleansed by the invaders. Refugees of now endangered species flooded into untouched space, seeking safety from the demons. Then, a new hope appeared. The Dengra Ascendancy, an ancient star empire that had survived numerous galactic cataclysms before, emerged from a self-imposed isolation. With grand war fleets and technology that made most citizens green with envy, the Dengra united the galaxy together to face the invaders. Warships from every star and planet joined the Dengra in a massive offensive against the invaders. The combined fleets of the galaxy pushed through the demonic fleets, racing to the portal, the bridge between the universe and whatever hell the invaders called home. The Dengra knew the portal needed to be destroyed, so that the unending stream of invaders could finally be stilled. When the fleets of the galaxy finally arrived at the portal, they found the star system it resided in surprisingly empty. The fleet attacked the portal, hoping to destabilize it to the point that it would close on its own. However, the portal seemed to regenerate with each hit. No matter how many times the fleet fired missiles, plasma, or kinetic slugs at the abomination in space-time, the portal remained as unharmed as it had been when the fleet first entered the system. When the attack was halted in order to try a different approach to destroying the portal, the invaders struck. Arriving at the edge of the system in every direction, the invaders' fleet millions strong, converged on the combined fleet. The following battle was disastrous for the defenders of the galaxy. The demons had trapped them all in system, destroying every vessel and sucking the life out of any survivors they found. In one battle, the galaxy became defenseless. The feasting of the demons accelerated as every star nation put production of their shipyards into high gear. The Dengra, as the horde of demons were sweeping into their borders sent out one final transmission, gifting the surviving species of the galaxy with details of the most advanced technologies they knew, in the hopes that they may be able to succeed where the Dengra had failed. That was half a century ago. Now the last remaining bastion of the galactic civilization was the Republic of Sol, led by the humans of Earth. Humans had been the furthest away from the portal, and now they stood as the last civilization not consumed by the demons. In the face of extinction, the humans had fully militarized, along with the refugees of the countless other fallen civilizations throughout the galaxy. Humanity had spent the time it had well. Its fleet numbered in the millions, ranging from small nippy corvettes to hulking dreadnoughts, all equipped... With the most advanced technologies, their scientists and crewed by battle-hardened veterans and fresh recruits ready to lay down their lives to save the human race. The battle that would decide the fate of humanity and the galactic civilization as a whole occurred in the Tau system, a mere ten light years away from Earth. The entirety of humanity's space borne military might gathered ready supplemented by the surviving militaries of dead star nations. When the demons entered the star system, they were met with a wall of nuclear fire. Thus, the year-long Battle of Talceti began. In the beginning, the battle was a simple defense for the humans. They wanted to prevent the invaders from reaching and feasting on the colony of New Africa. At first, the fleet remained within the gravity well of the colony fighting off attacks by the invaders with the support of massive railgun cannons orbiting the colony. The demons attacked nearly every day, trying to erode away the fleet protecting the planet. While the fleet suffered losses with each attack, it remained strong enough to keep the planet secure. Back on Earth, the Admiralty knew that this wouldn't last. The Grand Admiral of the fleet, Cook Johnson, knew that while the human fleet was strong for now, eventually... The invaders would erode away at it enough to deliver a final killing blow. Johnson knew that in order to reverse the invasion, they would need to go on the offensive, and he felt City should be the turning point in the fight for survival. He pulled together a small token fleet made out of outdated warships, numbering a few hundred strong, and sent them to City. The Admiral was banking on the fact that the invaders were growing more and more hungry every day that they were denied access to New Africa. They had already consumed every living sentient outside of the Republic and were relying on human worlds to keep them fed. When the token fleet entered the system, it immediately drew the invaders' attention, not only as a military threat, but also as a food source that could be used to sate their hunger, if temporarily. The invaders pulled away from New Africa, eager to feast on the crews of the Token Fleet, and too wrapped up in their own hunger to maintain a siege on the planet. At that moment, the Grand Fleet burned out of the orbit to follow the invaders, firing long-range nuclear missiles after them. Just as the invaders reached them, the Token Fleet jumped out of the system, forcing the invaders to turn their attention to the pursuers. No longer Confined to both New Africa's gravity well and the directive to prevent any breakthroughs, the Grand Fleet attacked viciously while the invaders were still turning their ships about to face them. When the invaders actually managed to organize and begin fighting back, the battle quickly spread out throughout the system as the invaders tried to break through to get to the planet, and the humans moved to counter them. This part of the conflict would take nearly six months to wind down, with multiple engagements fought at every major celestial body in the system. The battle claimed nearly two million human lives, and it is estimated that four million invader vessels were destroyed. The Battle of Talceti ended when, in the first time since the offensive led by the Degra, the invaders retreated from Talceti. When Admiral Johnson received word of the victory at Talceti, he was quick to capitalize on the situation while the majority of the Republic was celebrating. He ordered the Grand Fleet to begin pushing out of Tau City and retake the galaxy. The invaders, shaken from their first defeat in fifty years, along with beginning to suffer from mass starvation without the conquest of new worlds, were pushed back more and more. Each world of the humans reclaimed allowed for more materials to be shipped back to Earth for the production of more ships and weapons, fueling the war machine to near-unstoppable heights. Even in the weakened state, the invaders were still a considerable threat and fought well. Progress was slow, and the Grand Fleet suffered some setbacks. Just bit by bit, system by system, humanity pushed the invaders all the way back across the galaxy to their portal, which by then seemed to have exhausted its supply of reinforcements from the invaders. The last battle of the war was fought right in front of the portal with the last fleet of invaders being crushed like the Dengra-led fleet had been. Once the invaders had been defeated, all that was left was the portal, still seemingly impervious to any assault. The Grand Fleet simply sat, guarding the entrance and testing different weapons in the hope of finding one capable of effectively damaging the portal. Then, almost a year after the final defeat of the invaders, a lone vessel emerged from the rift transmitting ancient diplomatic codes to the fleet. The same codes that were assigned to the first diplomatic vessel the invaders had destroyed when they were first entered the galaxy. Then a message was transmitted. We seek peace. Immediately, the surviving galaxy was in uproar. Many were offended that the demons would even ask for peace after killing trillions. sentient beings. Petitions to invade the demon's universe and visit the same destruction and loss of life the galaxy had been forced to endure. Politicians screamed at each other over the issue. Riots broke out where the advocating for peace were attacked, the majority wanting to drive the invaders to extinction with no remorse. However, in the end, the decision was up to Grand Admiral Johnson, who had his fleet ready to destroy the vessel and go through the portal. Leave and never return, he told the lone ship, which quickly fled back through the portal with the message. As soon as it was gone, the portal began to destabilize and eventually collapse, closing off both universes from each other. Many were in an uproar over the Grand Admiral's decision, including the Senate of the Republic which stripped Johnson of his rank and discharged him from the military. However, in the end, Johnson repeated to all that he stood by his choice. The galaxy began to rebuild, with the surviving species leaving Earth's protection in order to reclaim the ruins of their civilization. Humanity was in ascendancy and an undisputed leader of the galaxy and hailed as its savior. The lost were mourned and the grand monuments erected for species that were rendered extinct by the invasion, though some scientists began campaigning for initiatives to collect any surviving genetic material in hopes of reviving lost species. Fifty years after the final victory over the demons, Johnson died of old age. Honored as one of the greatest military heroes in human and galactic history, Many statues of him were erected throughout the galaxy on various worlds. In his memoirs, the former Grand Admiral revealed his reasoning for allowing the demons to leave in peace. On that bridge, with the decision in my hands, I could have easily ordered that one last ship be destroyed, and then pour through the portal with my fleet as they did to us all those years ago. Part of me, the part that wanted to make them hurt like we did. To watch as their friends and loved ones were killed, just like they did to us, wanted to. But I realized that we, as a civilization, as a galaxy, we're standing at the edge of an abyss. If we went through that portal, we would become what we were fighting. We would lose any pretense of justice or morality. We would become the monsters we swore to fight. So... I thought that would be the best way to step away. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, one thousand five hundred and twelve, story number one. Eternal, written by Prussian Joe. They're still still out there. I I I know it. Come off it. They disappeared a thousand years ago. No way any of them are left. Not after what they did. Telling you. They're coming. I have proof this time. Real proof. You have proof last time, too. That proof lost you your job and most of your sanity. Look, I've been in the quarantine zone. I've seen the truth. I swear I have. You went into the QZ. Are you stupid? If anyone finds out, you'll be executed. The risk was worth it. I had to know what happened. What really happened. We know what happened. They created a black hole and swallowed themselves up. If they did, uh, then where's the black hole? I've been to the QZ. There was nothing. Nothing? It probably collapsed. Like the scientists said it might. Maybe they'll lift the quarantine. They'll never lift the quarantine. What makes you say that? Because the second they do, everything will fall apart. The society is built on that quarantine, being active, and what they are supposedly protecting us from being the truth. Eh, it isn't. Uh, and when people find out, it'll be the end of everything. What you find in there? The truth. They aren't dead. They're only gone for a while. Searching for something. Looking for answers. But they'll be back. I know they will. Raktar Marin, recorded shortly before his apparent suicide, eight years before the return. Citizens of the Society, welcome to our one-thousandth festival of rebirth. On this day, a thousand years ago, the mantle of the Galaxy leadership fell upon the shoulders of giants so that we may rise to our full potential. And rise we have. Please, all of you, eat, drink, and thank your society for raising us up. Together Primarch Vendilius five years before the return Sir, we're getting some anomalous readings from the QZ. Society commands uh, has asked us to investigate. Admiral Tainor looked through the Primarch's orders. His face a study of military rigidity. I want the shallow field dropped in quadrant seventeen B in preparation for our entry into the QZ. Nice, sir. Quarantine control confines opening to Quadrant 17B for entry. Bring us in. Send priority Omega Com to the Primark to inform him of the situation. The Grand Admiral leaned back in his chair and clasped his mandibles together. There had been readings like this in the past, but they were getting stronger. More regular. As the warship passed through the shadow field boundary, Dana felt that familiar chill race along his carapace. He was back. the quarantine zone, and things were uniformly strange here. It always felt like they were being watched. Grand Admiral Taino's personal journals recovered from the warship majesty two years before the return. "'We can never forget the society is built on the largest lie in the galaxy. We cannot forget why society was formed. The work must continue, for something is coming.' I can feel it. We must be gone before then, though our transgressions shall be judged with harshness beyond measure. Primark Vandilius to the High Council, speaking of Project Exodus ten months before the return. A millennia ago, we left you. You gave us oaths, promises to await our return. Yet, as soon as we departed, those oaths were shattered. Promises forgotten. Your leaders have lied to you. They have built the society of yours on our ashes. For lifetimes uncounted, we waited in the beyond past the veil. We watched, waited, and learned. We have returned as promises. Spectres from the past coming to life. Wrathful gods are we, turning again to our creations and finding them (laughs) lacking. Transmission from quarantine zone seconds before the shadow field collapse. Day of return. A thousand years, that's all it was. For us, it'd been tens of thousands. Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. We saw their quarantine form. We heard their whispers of conspiracy. We saw through their lies, even as they formed them in their tongues. Past the veil, in the beyond, we waited, how knowledge grew, how technology advanced, and our people stagnated. That same tired minds labored into eternity. There were tears in the fabric of existence, and when we peered through them, we saw the universe on a knife's edge. One wrong move, one shift in balance in the wrong direction, and it would all fall. We saw a game for what it was, so we stopped playing. In our step outside of time and space, we balanced the scales And with our return, we will tip them in our favor. Those of you who knew, who broke your oaths, who even now try to flee, will be punished. Those of you who are innocent, who knew not of any oath, who have minds free of that guilt, will be spared. For there is still need. Together we might stop the coming storm. Apart, we may ride it out into the uncertain future. But shattered, we will fall beneath the waves. Our empire was, and it is still eternal. What was ours shall be again, and when we arrive, we expect obedience and subservience, as it was in the old days." When our ships fill your sky, those that kneel, that give their fealty, will be lifted high. Those who stand in defiance shall be cast down. Watch for us. Address from Justinian the Golden to every individual in the society. Two days after the return. Our oath was kept. Commander Chakar of the Order of Sol, the vanguard of the Internal Empire, three days after the return. We flew too close to the sun, so we must burn. Final entry in Primarch Vendelius's journal, shortly before the vanguard's arrival over the capital. It has been passed into myth and legend, a story to tell children The Eternal Empire was a golden age, an era to strive towards reclaiming. Yet, history remembers the myths and legends, and not everything in the Empire was gold. Arch-scholarus Yanmer, highest authority of ancient history at the university. Most forgotten, something we cannot fault for the innocent for Those that neglect it, however, they will face our retribution... Lord Captain Separatus, commander of the vanguard of the Eternal Empire, one week after return. They descended as angels, but fire in the eyes spoke of another purpose. They came not as saviors, but as gods of war, returning home to find traitors in their midst. The calling was rapid, brutal, and efficient. If you held the oath true in your mind... Then you had nothing to fear, doubt, regret, rebellion. These things were extinguished. Only the faithful were spared. Governor Uther of the Raani on the arrival of the vanguard and the subsequent culls. Thirteen days after the return, almost overnight, the society was eradicated. In its place returned the Eternal Empire, resuming command as it had never left. Old Earth, long thought destroyed, reappeared into a universe as a shining realm of unimaginable wonder. The eternal empire of humanity had returned from its long absence. They came as conquerors, lords and gods amongst the lesser mortals. But they also came as teachers, as instructors in new marvels beyond anything created since the empire's departure a thousand years before. The Eternal Empire had a goal, a directive that it would not let fall to any other. Some called it a callous and harsh, others noble and mighty. The truth is that humans saw something that made them flee to the beyond. They sacrificed a galactic empire so that it may save the universe. We still don't know how long it was for them in the beyond, for in that place, time has a different meaning. They prepared for something, something big, something that we cannot perceive. We can only trust that they will save us. I believe that they will. I believe that they must. The Architect of Thul, personal memoirs written during the creation of the history of the Eternal Empire of Humanity, ten years after the return. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1513. Story number one. Talkers Make Me Hungry. Written by British Tea Company. The bar provided plenty of comfort for the rather warm temperatures outside, ranging from cool drinks, functioning ACs, rooms to sleep in, or workers in the oldest profession. The bartenders, of course continued to keep a wary eye through his seemingly satisfied customers. A wrong word, a wrong gesture, or even the wrong person was enough to cause chairs to fly. The bartender's sharp eye caught the small vial of yellow liquid being passed around. Narcotics. They were illegal, and by all means he should have reported it to the most clueless authorities. But that would have been an excellent way for him to be found in a dark alley, with a knife at his back. The cartel was everywhere, and his bar just happened to be on their payroll. Not that he willingly took the money, of course, but it was either a creep or have his brains be on the outside of his head. The things people had to go through these days. The doors opened to reveal the group of guests. The bartender cringed for a moment as he saw his guests. In the sector of space, any idiot who didn't know how to see trouble typically found himself mugged before sundown. And there were trouble right there. The local mob typically were gentlemanly. They never asked for trouble, just for a place to sell their products. These guns. oh no, they wanted trouble.
1: They hunted
0: for it. Thanking his lucky stars that none of the mob were in his bar, lest there be a gang war right in his home, Cause. His hope turned right down the drain when one of those criminals decided to grab one of the female patrons. No one dared to move a muscle. Those guns were in plain sight, and the bartender could do nothing but feel sorry for the victim as she screamed for them to unhand her. He decided to look away. A new species entered his bar, and he sure as hell wasn't sure what this one is even supposed to be. He had plenty of white fur on his head and a bit on his chin. His skin was a tannish shade. He had quite the scars on his cheek. The bartender would have thought him to be one of those generic tough guys that ran rampant around here had it not been for the fact that this thing was over six feet tall and wearing some kind of military-grade armor. Oh, great uh, mercenary. Marvelous. As though his day couldn't get any better. The mercenary got an eyeful of what was going on in the far corner before he set himself down at the table close to the criminals, watching them as though it was some kind of sick show. Suddenly, he grabbed one of the drinks from those vermin and drank the entire cup. Naturally, this shifted attention. What in the fuck do you think you're doing, bitch? The stranger looked at them as though he was amused, his mouth curled into a nightmarish smile, revealing lines of large teeth, and sharp fangs that made some of those low cringe. Drinking. This is a bar. That's my drink. Pay for it. I don't presume you intend to pay for what you're doing over there. We don't have to. I don't have to. Hey, look, fellas, we got a tough guy here. Think you're some big shot with that fancy armor and those scars. How about I shock you one? See how tough you really are, big guy. Please be my guest, the mercenary said as he held his hands out like an invitation. When nothing came, he grabbed another one of the drinks. No bark, no bite. You're a talker. Talkers make me thirsty. The alien said nothing, only glared at the large alien. And hungry. You can chew on my fist. I'd love to. It looks delicious. No one knew what the last sentence was, literally, until the mercenary picked up the smaller one by the arm and bit right into it. The sickening crunch and even more sickening shriek caused all of the patrons to stare in shock and horror. The bloody giblets and the broken limb fell to the ground. It wasn't much of a fight. Some of the scum tried running away, but that big alien blotted a few slugs in their backs with whatever monstrosity of a gun he was using. Those who tried to fight found themselves in a hole in the ground. Zang glared at the armless alien before he placed a finger in his ear. He watched their would-be victim watching him with amazed eyes. Colonel August, target has been eliminated. With that, the mercenary grabbed prey and butt right into its flesh. The screams tore through the bar and ended with a gargle. The body fell to the ground, partially eaten. Zang looked at the bartender before walking over. The alien cowered in fear of him. (laughs) don't, don't, Don't eat me. Zang said nothing as he grabbed a few napkins to wipe his mouth, dropping off a few coins at the bartender. He stood himself upright before facing the alien. The drink was good. So was the food, Zang continued. What's your name? Queen. Queen? Very well. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Major Zhang of the Terran Republic. Now Klein sent us here to eliminate local crime. Oh my, it worked. You're... So, so, so you're the Terran? Indeed. The job has been finished. I am glad you chose to pay us in advance. We'll be visiting. Klein wasn't sure if it was a blessing or a curse as Zhang left his bar. The dead body still in the middle of everything. At least, he wouldn't lose his customers. They were pretty used to seeing people get shot over something as trivial as a pencil. He, uh, would still have to clean up this mess, though. End of story. Story number two. You contain multitudes, written by Because I Said So Too. I contain multitudes. Walt Whitman. I am Legion. Unknown. You have three eyes. The two you see of your world with, the inner one that lights ours. When it's not obscured by the storms of emotions and clouds of destruction and self-doubt. Our world is hard to describe, but you'd recognize every part of it. It's a jumble of rooms, times, and places. The majority of its inhabitants flicker in and out of sight forms shifting and changing as they go about their lives by the light of your third eye, or beneath the clouds obscuring it. Sometimes, on a clear day, we feel the heat of your gaze, and we stare back at you. All the flickering faces look upwards with devotion and love to see you, and to be seen by your distracted and half-blind eye. When we do, we can dimly see your will through it as well. And to us, it seems to be a chaotic jumble of joys, sorrow, pain. Though there are things in your world that are so beautiful that they create an echo in ours, the ones you love the most, for example, exist here too. Perhaps as a pale shadow, though we feel real to ourselves. We know we are creatures of memory, Merely flickering ethereal things. Yet, we've seen our counterparts disappear from the world that we observe through your third eye. While we remain in that teeming inner world it illuminates. When your father died, I was still here, staring upwards through the lighting and the rain. Into the fishbowl circle and the third eye's iris. I too saw your mother's shocked face as she told you and I felt our world roll beneath my feet. I screamed out that I was in here, and that I loved you. Screamed until my voice was raw, and I think you heard me. Eventually, the ground stopped moving, and the storm died down, though it rained for quite a while. When your heart was broken by your first love, she was still in here, shocked and dismayed by the callousness of her counterpart and originator. She went on a pilgrimage to find the memories that would knit the hole that had suddenly appeared within you. And though she was gone for a long time, she returned with the cherished memories that now fill that empty space. When your brother died the way he did, his counterpart within you shared your shock and horror and wept with you. He ran around in our world for years, seeking out the bricks in the oppressive clouds that covered the sky, so that he could meet your inner eye when the clouds would part, so that you would see him and know that he was and would always be here for you. When the clouds finally broke apart, you saw him smiling up at you, and he saw a twinkle in your third eye. That meant that you were smiling back. Those were just three of the times we fought in your behalf. There were so many more. Our group, your inner pantheon of heroes, is small. But growing, each of us have had our moment in the sun of your third eye. And each of us have fought for you in our own way. And we will do so again. For you our legion. You contain multitudes and you are not alone. You have all of us inside of you and you mean the world to us. Close your eyes see us now. A multitude of familiar and beloved faces smiling upwards at you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1514 Story number one. Don't feel sorry for me. I lived a good life. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. I sat in a broken hull of a building. Claws delicately holding a data pad he'd given me. I dared not rub the unfamiliar moisture from my eyes. I blinked it away and gazed over the peaceful sunset upon my home world. The first... In a very long time. But. To tell that story. I must start from the beginning. He. Was a Terran marine. One of the many that landed as aid against the galactic council. Truth be told. The Terrans were the only ones to offer help. The massive spacecraft laid waste to the hordes of council soldiers upon our soil. Long enough for them to land troops. His name. Was Daniel? He stood head and shoulders above me and my people. His slim-fitting combat armor scratched and burned from battle. I was scared of first as the huge bipedal creature, its pale, hairless skin except at the top of its head and around its mouth. I was cowering in the ruins of my home, scared, trapped with the smell of rot, but intact. And oh, boy! Was I scared when the massive bipedal approached and slowly dug the rubble, trapping me, screaming behind him in the Terran language. The humans managed me, fed me. When they were done, Daniel came to my bunk and quietly sat in a chair. He swallowed, stroked his facial hair, then set a device on the table next to him. There was a flash and he began talking, the device translating it into my language my apologies for not speaking with you sooner. I, I, I'm sorry to report that there are only a few survivors from your town. The, the council was uh, thorough, uh, as always. Uh, we've begun to relook. I snapped. The fear and anger at the Galactic Council had fled, and then I snarled. No! I want to fight! I want revenge for my people! I was in my prime. I slashed my claws through the air as a display, and Daniel seemed thoughtful. Let me talk it over with High Command. That single sentence changed everything. Daniel fought his higher-ups to let me be put in his squad. I was on the ramp for the relocation ship when Daniel grabbed my shoulder. I turned, raising my claws to fight when he said, We got a war to fight, soldier. Where are you going? Daniel taught me everything he could, from how to use my claws more effectively to human martial arts to rigorous regimes to hone and toughen my body. Then the day came that the council came for our fortified town. The fight started with a two-hour orbital bombardment that shook the town down to the bunkers that we hunkered down in. When it was over, I saw Daniel in action. He shouted orders left and right, calling people by their names as he ran to the bunker elevator, cramming himself in with all of us. When the doors opened, there were only three words that left in his mouth. Go, go, go! We ran into a firestorm of laser bolts. The first council soldiers I saw felt the rage of my planet as I slammed my claws through their neck, using them as a shield to charge forward at another group. My thick, hollow fur displaced a few straight bolts that made contact as I leapt into the group, using the techniques of leverage and weight movement to make my strikes lethal. Then a blaster was in my face. I froze. Was this how I die? This is a Carter burst of human fire, bomb and a stark green splatter of blood from my assailant shook me free as Daniel grabbed me and hauled me to a reinforced building just as a super-heavy laser bolt obliterated our lost position. Ducking behind the sandbags, Daniel kept up a steady stream of fire until he shouted, "Tank!" He grabbed me and hauled me out of the fight as another super-heavy laser bolt obliterated our reinforced position. Daniel let me hit the ground, snaring down at council tank as he detached a metal box from his back. He removed some sort of detonator as the tank's barrel began to glow. Then he dashed forward, the bolt hissing over me and cratering nearby as Daniel ran up, jumped on the tank and stuck the metal box right onto the turret before jumping off, And sprinting away as he hit the button. The tank went up in flames. He ran back to me, getting me to my feet and screaming at me to get cover. I obeyed, scrambling for the cubby in a collapsed building. I turned and watched Commander Daniel's last stand. His rifle blazed, taking many council soldiers down before a bolt hit his chest. Then his stomach. Then his shoulder. His helmet. He fell and lay still for a moment. Council soldiers approached fast. Then the crumpled figure raised another detonator, clicking the button. Everywhere began exploding. Council soldiers flung to the air, screaming. Then silence. I rushed over to Daniel and he was smiling softly, half his face burnt and bleeding. But he was still laughing. Sir, I asked. His eyes cleared and he looked into mine softly as he put a hand softly on my shoulder. My boy! He was just like you. So full of that fighting spirit. Wanted to take the fight right to the enemy. He hacked and coughed up sick blood before saying, You're a good kid. Uh, and a good soldier. The unfamiliar wetness came to my eyes as I said, No, who, who fight with us? He smiled a little deeper. Humanity will always fight for the underdogs. Don't feel sorry for me. Ah, I've lived a good life, and I'd like to see my son again. He lifted his other arm and clasped the data pad in my claws as a signature rumble of human ships entering the atmosphere filled my ears. I looked up at the massive ship descending above our town, raining fire from its massive guns. When I looked down, Daniel was no longer there. Just the corpse of a brave human. I tapped the play button on the data pad and listened as Daniel revealed the plan. His platoon was the only one in the area. They volunteered to be a strike force to fake a large-scale troop landing while reinforcements could prepare and arrive. Him and his men acknowledged the possibility of death and stated, Well, nobody lives forever, do they? I gazed out of the ocean as I cried freely. Tomorrow, I begin my journey to the solar System as an honorary citizen of Earth. More importantly, as an ambassador to other races in the newfound absence of the Council. End of story. Story number two. A species exists as long as their administration does, written by incredulous Ho. Humans are currently one of the greatest galactic nations. One can best describe the hairless mammals of Earth as weak, slow, and not exceptionally intelligent. Yet these little creatures' civilization is millions of years old. How come it's that these pathetic creatures are not dead yet? In almost all civilizations, when they accomplish a great thing, a few generations later that deed has been made mystified or forgotten. The strategies that person accomplish mystify to a degree where it is no longer applicable or forgotten to the point that no one even knew that that person existed in the first place. In almost all civilizations, entire worlds are forgotten. Scientists are promised 15,000 galactic credits and only get 5,000. The works of those people, of those worlds, are neglected and forgotten. It should come to no surprise that most species start out as a unified entity but slowly devolve into states led by warlords, which do not advance technologically at all or do so at an incredibly slow pace. Humanity might still be fractured, but this is not due to neglect. It is due to, well, internal differences. So coming back to the question, why are humans so powerful? It has a surprisingly accurate answer. They do not forget their history so easily. They remember it. They cherish it and revel in it. It is why there is so much conflict amongst humans but it is also why even the dumbest of humans can outsmart a well-trained strategist. They can simply look into the past for guidance. If a foe has a strong navy, they'll never engage it directly. They'll know how to chip away at the enemy instead of facing them head-on. If a foe has a strong army, they'll simply shoot the transports out from the sky. And if the foe has a strong economy, they'll raid it into submission. One human mind might be weak, short-lived, and dumb. But they never just have their own minds to aid them. They had that of billions gone before them. And so it is that humanity is currently the longest surviving race with the most powerful military. And they have not forgotten how they achieved this. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1515 Story Double One, The Hallowing, written by Ryan Tific Theory. Vampires are real, not in the way that we imagine them, with fangs and blood and burning sun, but real nonetheless. It turns out that emotion is a genuine form of energy, but one only given form through sapience. It's a resource, And like all resources, demand can easily outstrip supply. Which is where we come in. Isn't it funny that mammals took over the world after dinosaurs already had it in their scaly little group? Hundreds of millions of organisms perfectly adapted for their world. And mammals took over after all they got creamed by a meteor. Just enough damage to wipe out the big ones, leaving a fucking shrew to take over the planet. Coincidence? Nah, not really. Now why would alien space vampires want mammals to succeed? Simple. Mammals were some of the first to invest in significant effort into caring for their young. Insects are practically robots, fish are weird, and reptiles could care less. Now, you might say, ah, but what about our fishy friends dolphins? To which I say, you're a fucking idiot because dolphins are mammals too. A transition to live birth and slow reproductive cycles are really what did it. Evolutionary parents that invested more time into their progeny were more likely to see the progeny survive. Family units and highly functional cooperative groups formed, and social evolution began. Emotions are a consistent response to keeping groups of individuals functional. Individually, it's a simple system. You manage to eat, boom, hooray, that's great. Your mom just tried to eat your leg, whoa, bad, back off. It's easy. Things that help are good, things that try and kill you are bad. Everything else is just kind of there. Social groups are where it gets interesting. Insects and fish schools don't count. Each individual automatically responds to a neighboring input, not like humans or apes. Even lower sentients like dogs have complex emotions comparatively. Love is obvious. Happiness, excitement, fear, even shame. Enthusiasm is the easiest way to see, though. All the internal excitement bursting free. Cats, too. Although they tend to lounge mainly in comfortable, complacent, and content, curiosity is also a staple along with cuddly. Warm and fuzzy words for warm and fuzzy creatures. Pets addressed. Humans are complex. You know the feeling you get when you're snug inside the middle of a booming downpour? What about the feeling when you recognize that girl you just walked by has a life and history as deep and complex as everything that you've ever known? The feeling of the warm sunshine on a cloudless day with nothing to do. There's so much more to us than love and happiness, comfort and curiosity, guilt and shame, hate, and depression. Which brings me to my point. Out of all of those things, one of them just doesn't belong. See? What happened when our alien space vampires realized emotions could be bottled, transferred, and sold is that they needed more emotions to be bottled, transferred, and sold. With enough money, you could experience a boundless ecstasy of an athlete scoring a winning goal the deep satisfaction of a musician ending a concert to a standing ovation, even the sensational passion with which they played a double encore. All sitting at home in your moneyed mansion, you could feel the hope of a soldier returning home to the family, the electric guilty pleasure of an affair, and even the paralyzing fear of a would-be murder victim's daring escape. The only caveat is that the donor could only feel an echo of what was rightfully theirs. The strain of emotion stole people's lives, pieces at first, but more and more over time. Depression was what happens when they become greedy, when someone's happiness is particularly succulent. They don't just take a slice, they tap a sort of metaphysical funnel into their head. They take that and take it and take it until there is nothing left but a vague fog of what should have been. In the beginning, it was just a poor, disconsolate few, emptied and lost in a way that we couldn't understand. We tried to help with chemistry and science, but nothing would ever stick. In time, the emptiness would creep back in and take them away. When it truly spread, nobody knew what to do. So many people dragged themselves out into the world, hanging on by the skin of their fingernails. We had no idea what was happening. All we could do was name it. The Hallowing. Empty people, living empty lives, struggling on an empty world. Suicides skyrocketed. But no one understood what was happening. How could the end of the world be nothing more than... Nothing... We refused to give in, even though we hated this grasping world, our hated, our inability to feel care. We struggled on, trudging forward, empty and bitter, hatefully consuming the things that used to bring us happiness, craving to feel one errant shiver of excitement like we had before. We couldn't even cry. The pit within us so disconnected from the emotions that once gave it meaning, We were being drained constantly, not just waiting for the moments that would make it unnoticeable. Our acceptance of depression as a normal phenomenon had signaled to those free-market bastards that it was time to expand. To everyone, all the time. Turns out, hate is the one thing that can't be funneled. Funny enough, anger can. It's a normal emotion. Anger can flare and fade and change. But hate is deep and bitter and poisonous. It didn't exist before us, before the Hallowing. Those that survived didn't do it because of hope. They did it because of hate. Because they hated everything and would be damned if it would finish them. Each step forward was an expression of hate. For our inability to run, to jump, to laugh and to mean it. We hated our inability, hated ourselves for what we had lost. Hated the fact that we could only hear echoes of love and hope that had once filled us on wings of pride and daring. We went to work as shells, hate whispering in our hearts. When we detected the massive energy flow of planet, we hated the fact that this knowledge had evaded us for so long. When we realized there was an alien ship, we hated the fact that they hadn't contacted us. When we realized what they were funneling, we hated that they had. Every hammer block, every spitting world in expression of an empty hate we feel, there is no warmth of rage or anger, just the bitter need to break them as they have broken us. The ships we build are expressions of our hate, and weapons we attach will reach out and speak it. They are not the vampires of which we spoke in legend, with blood and fangs and burning sun. But we will banish them nonetheless. Now I knew what it meant to hope, I would dream of being people again, of living after this. But I don't. All we feel is emptiness, gilded with hate. And our hate will be the cold and remorseless suns that burn them alive. End of story. Story number two. The Wandering Race, written by Whiskey Lullaby. Of oh, all the races of Faldron. None could deny the humans were the most adventurous. Elves had long lives and magic, but tended to not stray from their palatial cities amongst nature. Dwarves were stout and strong, but the risk of us preferring to fortify and grow their wealth for sure deals. Halflings are brave and have the devil's own luck, but prefer their comfortable homes and villages. Compared to all of them on traits alone, humans were lacking. Nowhere near as magical as the elves, with lives so short that even the oldest human that ever lived died bedridden more than 75 years before the oldest ring felt the need for a cane. Nor could they compete with the genius or the skill of the dwarves, whose merchants and craftsmen, often had more experience than any human could gain in their lifetime. However, this race of mayflies, where it felt every second was precious, came into prominence for one reason. Their indomitable thirst for adventure. Where others sought comfort and stability, humans sought answers, places overtaken by foul beasts and written off as lost by the mighty elves and proud dwarves, were reclaimed by brave men and women. Human explorers cast aside superstition and fear, wandering near and far, making maps and building where others dare not. Now, the many kingdoms of man have decided to band together, not for war, nor self-interest, but to write a new chapter in the saga of the supposedly lesser race. To build the ship, that can withstand the rigors of travel beyond the treacherous coasts of our collective homeland and the monsters that dwell within. To continue in the footsteps of their ancestors who first braved the wilderness between the scattered races and walked the paths that became the first roads. To explore and to meet new peoples, discover new places. In this endeavor, we of the so-called elder races should lend our aid and support. For in these modern ages, we seem to have lost something precious that let our venerated ancestors, those who walked among the gods, build our civilizations in the first place. Those who had bravery and fortitude to carve their way into the mountains and forests, to research and harness the mysterious forces of magic and find the beautiful vistas and fertile land to build their homes upon. It is the old dwarves' firm belief that we should look to the humans as a gift from the gods, a reminder of what our people used to be, and could be again. Dogovar, Dwarven Forgemaster to the Council of High Kings, circum 831st Year of the Second Age End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1516. Story number one. The Secret Society. Written by Zyosue. Our people and our biggest enemy now live together, more or less. There will never be in perfect harmony between us. We're a bit too different for that. But thanks to the humans, we have a truce that seems to last. True. There are often small fights between our species, but it's usually just individuals who don't quite get along. It's almost as common as cross-species friendship. You probably wonder why we live together instead of on separate worlds. Well, there was this war. Long and uh, bloody, remember? We had these arms race going on that at the end resulted in weapons powerful enough to destroy both of our planets. A few hundred ships managed to escape from each planet, filled with mostly civilians who were tired of fighting. A high price to pay for a truce. All we needed now was a new home. When we first turned our eyes towards the stars, we discovered each other, and not much resources had been dedicated to that particular kind of science since then, with a war and all. There was, however, one single system within reasonable range of our rather basic FTL drives. Particularly interesting was its third planet that seemed to be sustaining the same kind of life that we were used to. This blue and green world was our only option, so we began our travels immediately. Food and other resources wouldn't last forever. A few days later, we arrived at a lush world whose most intelligent life form were the primitive bipedals we came to know as humans. To say that their level of technology was laughable was an understatement. They were practically still at the Stone Age. They did, however, have qualities that the other species of the planet didn't. For example, a quickly evolving language and the use of tools, albeit primitive. They also had pets which told us that they could be friendly towards other species if they chose to. It was easy to compare their development with our own history and realize that these humans were our best bet in the long run. So we landed our ships in remote areas and cautiously entered this new world. We put the ships in storage at the bottom of an ocean trench, spread out and began to interact with the humans. It was a scary situation. Sure, we did have the technological advantage with subdermal communication and shielding devices, but the humans were so much larger and powerful that they could still injure us if they wanted to. To our delight, most of them welcomed us with friendly gestures and food offerings, even if some individuals were less friendly. We never revealed our true nature to our hosts for fear of being seen as threats that needed to be formed. However, through the years, we have secretly hinted of selected technological advancements, thus gently pushing humanity forward as a thanks for the continuing hospitality. They have evolved astonishingly fast compared to our own history. They're true naturals when it comes to technology. Ever since we arrived, our three species have lived together in a continuous equilibrium. Not true peace but a truce that seems to last forever. Humans also seem to have a natural sense of what triggers my species' happy thoughts, what puts us in our comfort zone. And surprisingly, they seem to understand our enemy on a similar level. This, of course, has a great part in maintaining and reinforcing the truce. Humans are the perfect catalysator, a crucial element. I guess that we were lucky. Story by Charlie Goodboy End of story Story number 2 To Face His Tormentor Written by British Tea Company As he stood in the inner sanctum of the Great Old One, he could already feel what slivers of his failing sanity begin to unwind as the strings of reality began to unravel. In this realm of putrid madness, there could be no In spite of the insurmountable victories and sacrifices it took just to land one man into this hell, the end was approaching, and like many worlds before it, the bells were tolling for the planet Earth. Victory, such a hollow notion in the face of the Great Old One. As the stars aligned, Earth's time, like many planets before it, would come. Certainly, there had been resistance, and perhaps limited success, by the earthlings. The great old ones' underlings weren't hard to defeat. Innumerable as they may be, and against all odds, an elite band of earth's finest soldiers had made their way into the very lair of the god himself after humanity's best and brightest managed to piece together a ritual that would open a portal from their world into the very home of these horrors. It was here that earth made its last stand. Against all odds, a lone soldier made it into the throne room of God himself. He was impressed, certainly, as he watched the lone man with a thousand eyes and curiously wondered in his dreamlike state what the little creature was doing as it recited a bastardized version of the Great Old One's tongue. As the Destroyer awoke from his slumber and tore his way into reality to finish this world, he could sense trickery afoot. Not one... To be outdone, the Great Old One flayed this puppet and sought to get on with his task. And to his annoyance, the dust moat came back. An insect like this could perhaps be ignored when he had a planet to kill. To his shock, he could not leave his own throne room. Realization struck the Great Old One. Despite his inscrutable nature, the lone man could recognize through his own failing sanity that God was enraged by these turn of events. Smiling to himself, the man had a nanosecond to realize his success before he was unmade in an instant. Cold void gripped him for a brief moment before he was thrust back into reality and into hell once more. Anger turned into frustration. The Great Old One could unmake this maggot. He could rend his flesh. He could turn him into an even lowlier creature. But he could never be rid of him. He would be as eternal as God himself. And so long as he lived, with whatever troubling price he may have paid, God would never be able to leave this horrible realm. The very birthplace of the Great Old One had come his own prison, with nothing but a mortal being his jailer. God could certainly take his frustration out on the mere man. He could certainly torment him in ways that would break the comprehension which mere creatures such as us could have. But he had already lost, and his loss would cost him until the day in which time itself would lay down and die. Perhaps the Great Old One could finally have a taste of the insanity which he drove countless worlds to prior to their destruction. He had been killed a thousand times, but between the choice of knowing forever that Earth and the countless worlds behind her would be safe, all lost in a sea of nothingness, this was the bed of fate. The stars will never align again to herald the death of another world as a cycle was forever broken. One man, subject to an eternity of delirium and death, was the only price to pay him. And perhaps that price wasn't so heavy on a personal level. Even God was no longer mighty when, after enough eons, he would grovel at the feet and bargain for his release. No, God was powerless against his tormentor. And until strange eons when death itself would die, the Great Old One could only witness that face, that demented, laughing face of mortal who had been shattered long ago who continued to suffer with him for the sake of spite, and for the sake of his world and his people, who could live forever out of reach from the hand of a destroying god. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1517 Story number one. Human Adaptability Written by Average Cake Enjoyer let me ask you a question, my boy. Who do you think reigns supreme in close-quarters combat? Not rival-range combat, but down-and-dirty close-quarters combat. Do you think it's the warriors of the Trilokai of mind? They've got dangerously sharp claws, you know. And their legs are built with speed. You should see one sprint. It'll close 100 standard meters in a blink of an eye. Or maybe you think it's the Relian Juggernauts. The Juggernaut's thick hide and tough chitin made them all but immune to the slashes and blows of even the finest of steels, and their muscles strong enough to fold all but the stoutest races in harm. Perhaps your mind wanders to the Krava Biotroops whose venomous fangs are capable of dispatching any sapient in quick order. Their caustic spit acidic enough to turn even steel into a puddle, given enough time. It's... it's gotta be the Renians, right, Papa? Allow me to tell you a secret. It is There's none of them. You didn't expect to hear that, did you? I can see it in your face. The troops of these three are the most decorated species on the side of the galaxy. Aren't the best in close quarters combat. At least one of them would be better than the others. Right. Brog. Take a look at what I said and try to see what they all have in common. Are you thinking back yet? I'll give you a moment. Um. Done yet? What's the answer? I'm, I'm not sure, Papa. That's to be expected. You're used to being strong, aren't you? Very little on our planet could possibly hurt you. That's what we get for evolving into apex predators. And those warriors I was just talking about are an extension of the same. They're just the apex predators of apex predators. This ties into my point. They've evolved to be the most dangerous of creatures... True death-wilders, in all definitions of the word, all share the same traits, strength, resilience, and more adequate natural protections. They don't rely on anything but the most spartan of clothing, because they don't need it. And yet, they can all be beaten and thrown aside, like the hatchlings of the Creebird, by a little-known species called... HUMANS. The the humans? Didn't they just recently get admitted into the Alliance? The very same, my boy. (laughs) Aren't they weak? They look like they just came out of the Garden World. How could they beat anyone? There's more to them than meets the eye. You are right, though. They are weak. Their skin is nothing compared to our hide and fur. You could probably cut right through it with your claws without even trying. And they've got no claws, nor nails, their teeth aren't sharp for bite, and they have got no acid spit or venom to speak of. They're totally and utterly defenseless. And you know what they had to deal with on their planet. It's no guarded world, let me tell you that. They had to survive with animals on their planet and par with the ones on ours. Well, that might not seem like much, do remember that the smallest of us is at least a head taller than the largest of them. If they had to deal with the animals like ours, how could they ever beat the others? They're better a close combat because of that very reason. They weren't ever apex predators on their planet. Many of the dirt side animals could very easily kill a human... And the same goes for the water-dwellers. How do you suppose they overcame this, hmm? They used their heads. Without the claws of the trillic, they fashioned their own. Their artificial blades made from bone and metal cutting just as well as any natural claw. Without the hard hides and chitin of the Redians, they made their own armor from the animals they killed. Back in the range of the Crovan's spit, they found their own way to kill from a distance, from simple thrown spears to bows, primitive firearms, all leading up to where they are now. Know that their greatest weapon isn't their fearsome claws, nor their impossibly tough exterior. No, their greatest weapon, arguably the strongest one of all, their ability to adapt. And be creative. Their world to be flexible. They aren't bound by foolish honor to adhere to the innate evolved advantages. Nor are they shackled by their stubbornness. Their weakness is their strength. From what they lack, they grow stronger. They'll take everything that makes you strong. Everything your species held proud about themselves... They'll take it, turn it around, and make it better than you could ever dream of. Purely they still wouldn't win against them, though, right? It just doesn't make sense. You can't kill a Radian with just claw and tooth alone. You still don't get it, do you? They don't only have tooth and claw. They've developed weapons we've never bothered pursuing, thinking them nothing but mere trinkets. The ancient musket of our forefathers, used, abandoned by the wayside in favor of our speed and strength, they've taken it and made it better than we could have ever imagined. Their legendary beasts, we pride ourselves in training. Their capability for flight and endurance, we so seek, so that we may travel leagues without tiring. They've made flying carriages of metal to do the same not requiring rest or food ours do. Dare I say, they'd be stronger than every species in the Alliance if you give them enough time. We may sit on our thrones of power, sharpening our claws and baring our teeth, but as we do, the humans slowly inch their way towards us, honing with wit and closing the distance until we ourselves look at their backs as they advance without us. So treat them well, as you would a backmate, As you would me. Remember what I've told you. For true strength lies in knowledge. Learn from them so that you may grow stronger. Perhaps you might even change the world as we know it. Papa? You don't take me too seriously. I'm just an old fool after all. No, no. You're right, Papa. I'll make you proud to be my father. That's a good boy. I'm sure you'll make me proud. An excerpt from the autobiography of Emperor Rochelle, the very same emperor to lead the Vrakian Empire into the Second Golden Age. End of story. Story number 2. Hugs written by Sinchi Dev. Officer Log 42069-0202. Today, the human arrived at Citadel. Fight the hassle for the Citadel security, but man eventful. Officer Log 42069-0203. Today, the human delegation reunited with the primate troops. No incidents. One observation, the humans put their arms around the other primates when ungreeting. Not sure what that means. Officer Log 420690204 Today the humans reunited with the canine pack. No incidents, but again, the ungreeting. This time it took longer than the previous one. The canine seemed to like it. The tails moved incredibly fast. Officer Log 420690205 Today the humans visited the avian flock, Noneventful, uneventful, uh, a weird un again. Officer Log, 420690206. Today was the feline Cloud's turn and to be visited by the humans' incident. The felines were very vocal about the dislike of the humans' weird un when we were about to interfere and separate them. The felines were ever more vocal about us and refused our help understand. Did they like it? Did they hate it? They did the ungreeting for longer than the canines. Officer Log 420690207 Utter Chaos. We'll update later. Officer Log 420690208 Utter Chaos screams in the Citadel. Officer Log 420690209 Damn, the humans and the weird un-greetings. The humans thought that it was a good idea to teach their un to the insectoids. Sure, the insectoids liked it. As a matter of fact, they liked it so much they decided they should be shared with everyone. Thousands of insectoids extended their arms to unsuspecting citizens while having their malls open with excitement. Needless to say, uh, the citizens weren't thrilled about it. Nomises Log 420690212. The human delegation is confined to its side of the diplomatic buildings. I've asked some people, their weird ungreeting is called a hug. Apparently, it's quite popular on the planet, and it is warm. To be honest, I don't care. I've never having one of those. I spent half the cycle avoiding the insectoids' hugs. Not having one. I don't even like warm things. I'm still shaking about the incident. Officer log 420690215. The human delegation is visiting my race next. I'm scared. We are the Salamanders Congress. I'll try to escape right before the end. I can't escape. The Salamander Envoy has asked me directly to participate in the un-greeting right now. In the restroom, wondering if I can fit through the pipes. Update. I can't but through the pipes. They have security measures that prevents attackers from getting in. Obviously, those ruined me. Getting out, too. I'm dreading it. But I have to do it. Uh, Here I go. We'll update later. So, um... This is new. It was indeed warm. Not like the warm-warm, like temperature warm, but in like, um, inside warm... When I was hugged, the shaken feeling left my body, and I felt immediately safe. I was angry at the insectoids before, but after having one, I get it. This uh, this should be shared with everyone. Officer Log 420690325 The hugs are now a thing to be expected everywhere in the Citadel, not only to ungreet, but also as a greeting Humans are the best at it, obviously. Poor humans, they can barely walk one block without someone asking for hugs. They don't seem to mind it, though. As an even better outcome, bites and other conflicts have almost dropped to zero on the Citadel. And some races that refuse to talk to each other have begun to interact regularly. Canines and felines, who are constantly at edge of war, now hug regularly. Though, um, felines would explain it to everyone willing to listen and, uh, unwilling to. They only do it because it was a condition imposed by the humans within their negotiations. I've never seen a feline actively avoid a canine, though. As a matter of fact, they seek them out in the street and greet them cheerfully. Uh, but don't go around saying that, unless um, you will find a paw in your mouth silencing you, or a claw in your butt... End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1518. Boxed Inside Out, written by Simi Loki. On August 3rd, 2032, at exactly 8.37am, Dr. Alexander Yadi, professor of physics at Lackland College, lost his mind. It was perhaps only the smallest of consolation prizes that he had found his keys at the same time. "'Impossible!' he declared to no one in particular as he stared at the jagged bits of metal dangling from the key ring in his hand. It was indeed the same set of keys that he had misplaced four months earlier. The same missing keys that had vexed him on and off for those same months and that he had wasted several fruitless hours over multiple days in search of. Here, yeah, at long last, he had found them. He'd discovered them in a box in his attic a box of keepsakes that he had set aside after his mother's death eight years earlier. He had sealed the box at the time, and today was the first day of contents had been exposed to the light of day since evening so many years ago. Yet, the very keys had gone missing earlier when the year were safely tucked away inside. Impossible! he said again. He repeated the word because... It was the only one his scrambled mind seemed capable of forming at the moment. It was a good word. A solid word. A word that he could anchor onto the gale-force winds of insanity tore at the tattered remnants of his mind. The word genius gets tossed around in lots of these days. So much, in fact, that its original definition has become diluted to the point of meaningless people can and do apply the term genius to any act of middling skill, no matter how mundane. A garbage man who can empty a garbage bin without spilling the contents may be termed a genius by his peers. Maybe because the term was so overused, many people assumed Yati was a stereotypical absent-minded professor, a man with his head in the clouds who would, on occasion, forget what lessons that he was teaching his class but lecture. Lackland College knew better. yati was a genius even amongst geniuses. He was a mind, was a scalpel for dissecting the secrets of the universe. His apparent distraction from ordinary events was more of a reflection of how little thought he dedicated to such things. He had only accepted the position at Lackland as they were the first to respond to him. yati was not absent-minded. His mind was incredibly focused. It was a mind where everything in the universe, from titanic cosmic structures to the most humble quark, all fit neatly together. The keys did not fit into such. He lost his mind. Impossible! 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 He chanted. As then tightened his grip on the keys, his knuckles turned white, and the teeth of the keys bit into his palm. He was not a mind that would accept an impossibility. He needed something to ground this fact. Thus, he said the closest thing to profanity in the world of physics. It must be, he said with great solemnity, entropy. With that declaration, his mind began to coalesce into a shadow of his former greatness. He could handle this. He could answer this. He would do both. Yet he stood up and retreated down the ladder into the upstairs level of his split-level house. He had lived in the house for twelve years. However, that was not evident from the way that it was organized. nor rather, how it was not organized. There was furniture, mismatched second-hand furniture purchased from the Salvation Army, and various yard sales around the city. There were not, however... Any pictures on the walls, no knickknacks or memorabilia, no human touches. Most of his possessions were still in cardboard boxes, lurking into the same spot where he had dropped them off when he would moved in over a decade ago. He marched into his living room and continued towards his front door. Beside the door was an end table with a cardboard box that Yati used to deposit any odds and ends that he would collected during the day. Books that he was reading, items that he had purchased from the store, his mail, and his phone all were dropped inside. This is also where he normally where he dropped his keys. It was where he was quite certain he had dropped his keys four months earlier, in fact. Yet, instead, he had found them in a completely different box in his attic. A box that had been taped shut. He lifted the box now and examined it carefully, as was typical for him. The box was quite full. It required both hands to lift it and rotate it for inspection. There were no holes in the exterior. He hadn't expected to find any. However, the inspection served another purpose as well. The box was most definitely an identical size to the one in the attic. Curious. Yati stepped out the front door and leapt without bothering to lock it behind him. He often forgot to lock the doors. He walked towards the grounds of the college with a determined air about him. He was still a young man, only thirty-five years old. If not for the typical disheveled appearance, he might even be called a handsome man. Yet, as was often the case, his and practices suffered from the same neglect as the rest of his life. His hair was tousled and unkept. His chin swatted a patchy growth of stubble from where he had forgotten to shave for several days in a row. His shirt and trousers did not match, and both sported prominent stains. Eyes followed him as he walked. He did not notice them. He walked past dozens of people and never registered another human being the entire time. He was focused entirely on one thing. Getting to his classroom. There would be a chalkboard there. The equations came slowly at first but they grew in length and complexity as time passed. Diagrams of cubes framed the edges of the board, as well as intricate geometric patterns. But as the numbers came to him, Yati, about his grip on the universe, come back to him. It made sense. He didn't like it, but it made sense. A stuffed cardboard box, he theorized, was an unnaturally ordered state in a local area, matter, was contained and forced into an ordered state by the cardboard itself. Entropy was key. The universe itself wanted to drop the contents of the box into a lower energy state, a more disorganized and random state. Two similar-sized boxes, therefore, could create a bridge between them which could potentially allow objects to be passed back and forth as the contents of the box sought a more stable energy state. Teleportation Nyati had discovered teleportation. Cheap teleportation at that. It didn't require expensive machinery or exotic matter to force open wormholes. It could be done with ordinary cardboard boxes. Or oh, could it? These equations only proved that it could happen. Making it happen and controlling it were another matter. Could it be directed? Nyati thought about it. Were there any other patterns that he had noticed before, now that he thought about it? It was. It seemed whenever things went missing, they inevitably ended up right where they most did not want them. If a canister of propane went missing, it seemed to always turn up next to a furnace. A fragile object would appear precariously at perched atop a high shelf. Whatever was written on the outside of a box, in fact, seemed to indicate the reverse of where things ended up being. Could it be that the secret that was written on the outside of the box dictated where it went? There was only one way to find out. He'd have to experiment. The biology department was down the hallway from his own classroom. Once again, he marched past wandering students without registering their presence. He had not noticed that the entire day had passed since he had entered his classroom, nor had he seen his own glass fill in behind him, only to leave once the bell rang? Yati's mind was only dimly aware of the physical world around him. Inside the biolamp, he located two small cardboard boxes of identical size. Their labels indicated that they had previously been used to store glassware. There was no matter. He located a black marker and wrote in one box, Do not store live animals inside, and placed it on the side of the room. In the other box, he dropped one of the Biolab's white mice. He then sat down to wait. After half an hour of no results, a normal man would admit defeat. "Yati was no normal man. One mouse does not make the box full, he concluded. It must be full for the transfer to take place. So saying, he tried to find suitable packing material for the box. He tried cotton at first. The mouse chewed through it. Next, he tried bubble wrap. The mouse almost suffocated. In desperation, Yachty finally emptied the contents of the box and weighed the mouse, figuring that whatever was written on the outside of the box was important. He subtracted three ounces from the mouse's weight and wrote in the box, Max weight, and then a new figure. He dropped the mouse inside and closed the lid. He sat down to wait. Five minutes later, he heard the mouse's squeak covering the box. The box on the opposite side of the room. It worked! He cheered. I can teleport items! It works! I invented it! Oh no. He hadn't invented it, he realized. There was nothing to invent. There was nothing new save for a few scribbled words. No new devices. Once he revealed this to the world, what was to stop someone from claiming that he had just made the discovery first? Dottie smiled. I'll just have to demonstrate it, he concluded. Demonstrate it in a way that'll prove it for the whole world to see. Yati left the biology lab. He had a lot of work to do before the next launch. Binding two identical boxes the size he needed was the easy part. Convincing the shuttle crew to load up an empty box into the cargo bay of the next launch was much harder. The mass of the box was slight, so that wasn't a big issue. The fact that it took up so much room was a larger problem, but not an insurmountable one. The fact that Yachty would not reveal the purpose was the major problem. He resorted to begging, bribery, battery, and all sorts of words that begin with the letter B. Finally, he had a date when the box would be launched into space. It was six months away, which was not good. But it was scheduled to dock with the Perihelion Orbital Station, which was very good news. He would prove to the world his genius by appearing inside the most remote human habitat in history. For six months, Yati was more absent-minded than usual. His classes were almost neglected, as his hygiene. The college sent him a few mildly threatening notices, which he ignored. The threats were never serious and he would not need the college for much longer anyway. On the day of the launch, Yadi called in sick to work and spent the morning doing something very un like He groomed himself, showered, shaved, and hair combed. He withdrew his best suit from the dry-cleaner's bag that it inhabited for the past five years. His trousers were ironed with a crease sharp enough to slice bread. His shoes were polished, his jacket free of lint. As a final touch, he pinned his tie in place, No sense having it float around awkwardly. Content, he would make a suitable impression. He climbed atop his bathroom scale. One hundred and fifty pounds. Good. The cardboard box in his living room. He took out his marker and wrote, Max weight, one hundred and forty pounds. Keep contents away from low gravity. He chuckled to himself. He climbed inside and closed the lid. Speech! He should have prepared a speech. He almost climbed back out, but that was when the floor dropped out below him. Cosmonaut Dmitry Pushkin hated poker. The cards floated off whenever anyone tried to deal with them. The Americans liked the game, so he tried to ignore the drifting cards. Draw two, he said. As the two cards drift away from his hand, John Cruthers, an American engineer, passed him two more. The radio beat, saving Pushkin from enduring more of the boring game. Krathus turned around and hit the receive button. Perihelianced one here, he called. Identify yourself. Shuttle valiant in route, was the response. Krathus smiled. Valiant, he said cheerfully. We almost gave up hope. You're fourteen hours overdue. Couldn't be helped, was the answer. We had a malfunction in the maneuvering thrusters. Are you all right, Krathus said. We're fine, uh, but we had to jettison some of the cargo to make it here. We tried to keep it to non-essentials, the pilot answered, and then... Inexplicably laughed. Did you know that some idiot paid for an empty box to be sent up? It's a satellite now. Probably will burn up and re-entry soon. That'll be a pretty shooting star, Grothers answered. Better dock and we'll check those thrusters. On our way. Over and out was the response. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1519 Story Double One Get me the feck out of here. Written by Ryan Riantific Theory. From overseer at psi.ence to op17 at ea.rth Subject, re, get me the feck out of here. CC, redacted, redacted, redacted. this and I don't know where you got those addresses, but in future please maintain appropriate communication protocol. Furthermore, You were tasked with discovering how the reason behind Research Site 17's exceptional technological development and did not provide any information towards the goal in your previous, uh, message. Regards, Overseer. From Op 17 at Earth to Overseer at Science. Subject, Riri, can be the feck out of you. CC, redacted, redacted, and redacted. Dear Overseer, I did not sign up for this crap. I'm a sociologist, not a, uh... I don't even fucking know. Some voodoo engineer? I already told you. They're fecking machine people. And for the love of all that's holy, get me out of here before they figure me out. This isn't normal. They look normal from space. But when you get down here, they look like people. They're not. They're meat machines. I don't know what freakish path of evolution took to make them. But it's everywhere. The plants. Cells. Everything organizes in mathematical patterns, the animal followed mathematical patterns, and the people. Everything's about patterns. Even their most abstract art just moves the patterns to your mind with some senseless paragraph-long explanation. They're made out of meat math. Clearly, you didn't understand my last message. They corrupt everything they touch, even on this godforsaken planet of patterns. They press even more order into it. Their measurements standardized a million years before ours. Their primitive ancestors built massive structures perfectly set to the ratio of 1.61, and the only part they thought was weird was how precise it was, not why it was. They just accepted that 1.61 is good. Except now they can run it all the way up to 1.618 for even trivial objects. They have an art form called music that uses interplay between different patterns of vibrations traveling through the air and governs it with freaky freaky logarithmic scale that somehow appeals to them. And not just appeals, they can tell if something deviates by six one-hundredths of a full note. Their language, too. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. Every single place I go, they notice the second I break one of their behavioral patterns. Perform a greeting wrong. Quiet pause. Focused stare. Mixed up their word order, which both follows prescribed patterns, and breaks those patterns in prescribed patterns. Quiet pause. Focused correction. Struggle with a sequence to gain passage to their mass transit. One of them will notice immediately... They're watching me all the time. It's all math. All of it. They have equations and algorithms describing the macroscopic to the atomic to the quantum level. You want to know why they beat us? They don't fucking guess. They spin out mathematical proofs before they even physically test them. You guys need to get me out of here. They're on to me. They've noticed I don't fit the patterns. And I've started asking if I need to go to one of their... Uh, Mental health clinics, please. Zenat. From redacted to OP seventeen at earth. Regards, re-re-re, get me the feck out of here. CC, overseer at science, redacted, redacted. Mental health clinic. From up seventeen at earth to redacted. Subject, re-re-re, re-re, get me the feck out of here. CC, overseer at science, redacted, redacted. It's where they reprogram deviant humans. The ones that they can be pulled back into the pattern are released. And the ones that can't are prevented from disrupting it anymore. Seriously, guys, please. I'm freaking the feck out. From redacted to overseer at science. Subject, re-re-re-re-re-re. Get me the feck out of here. CC, op, 17, at earth, redacted, redacted. Pull the agent, double the redundancy cover measures for all the monitoring stations. We'll discuss measures to prevent FTL progress. Op 17 at Earth, to redacted, subject re-re, 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 get me the feck. C.C., overseer at science, redacted at redacted. Oh, thank God, oh, thank you so much. I, 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 love you. From redacted, to op 17 at Earth, subject re-re, 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 re get me the feck. CC, Overseer at Science, redacted, redacted. Who is this? I don't love you and I'm certainly not getting the feck. Sick people sending emails just to anyone. D- don't expect to get away with this. They just wait until the technology boys get this. Head of intersystems Research, Manset. From redacted to IT at Systems Subject. re 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 Get me the CC, Op-17 at Earth, Overseer at Science, redacted. Hi, uh, I was just writing to inform you that the spam you let onto the system, please take care of this, head to InterSystems Research, Manzit. End of story. Story number two. A Christmas Miracle, written by Rosie013. Mertner sat in Station's communication console and supped his warm drink in a contemplative boredom. There had been not many travelers passing through the region these last couple of days, and consequently his job to organize the docking of ships had been uneventful. There were a few, but scheduled supply ships and the occasional lost tourists didn't amount to much to do. He could have blamed it on the time. Most staff new to the role would assume that the early hours of the night ship would naturally be quiet to time or cycle, but no. Ships didn't care about port cycles when arriving. They always ran on ship time. That could be anything, depending on where it last came from. He might even ask his supervisor for more work. Something, anything, to dull the boredom. Or not. It wasn't like this kind of quiet happened every day, this close to human space. Rector scratched behind his eyestalks distractedly, totally unaware that his nervous tick was blunting his claws on his carapace again. He was reading the latest station report from his sector of the frontier space, dubiously named the Soul Sector. It was more or less the same situation the other eleven stations had reported. It was quiet. Too quiet. The human migrations had died down for the first time in about three hundred cycles, with no warning or explanation. Sure, The humans were a friendly enough bunch, but they had to have a close eye on them at all times, lest they accidentally cause trouble. Or more trouble. Can't have them crashing the galactic market again. No, there was only one thing to be done about it. Rector would compile the report and send it up the chain. Now, for the first time. He lamented at how being one of the first lines of defense against human mischief was far, far above his pay grade. The command center was in shambles. General Synap thought to himself as he strode in and surveyed the scene. Junior officers were running back and forth with reports. Technicians sat eyes glued to the stations in concentration. He seconded, looking like he was already at his third cup of stimulant, despite the fact that he probably responded to the alert at the same time as himself. <sighs> Must be the humans again. His second-in-command situation report only confirmed his worst fears. Nothing else in the entire goddamn galaxy could cause trouble like this newer species. In less than a year since their accidental discovery, they'd caused no less than three serious incidents, more than any other first-contact species ever recorded. Humans managed to accidentally kidnap an important ambassadorial aide with military secrets to serve as a ship mascot, they crashed the galactic market with an influx of petroleum, plastic products, and ludicrously low prices. SinEp didn't even want to get started on the latest issue. The introduction of the human pastime of the... Uh, graffiti. It had spread like wildfire, and was past becoming the favorite pastime of amateur artists, sexual deviants, and impoverished beings everywhere. Now they had almost entirely retreated to their side of the line in the dark that denoted where civilized space ended and the wild frontier began quickly and quietly with no warning of any sort Just what were these buggers up to A polite but firm visit to the ambassador would be required no matter it would give the fleet's time to hastily assemble to counter whatever madness emerged from Seoul Major Denosis stood over the data analyst, studiously watching him work instead of paying his full attention to his furiously ranting boss, General Synap. Apparently, the human's ambassador had rebuffed the old general's request for an urgent meeting on grounds that it was Christ Mass, whatever that means. What it did mean for the unfortunate Major is that he now had to tolerate an upset boss, while coordinating the staff's efforts to comb through countless intelligence reports, updates, and human propaganda to figure out what was going on. Hopefully, before they needed to call in the reinforcements. Personally, Denosis didn't think that humans deserved the reputation that they were given by the rest of the galaxy. Sure, they were alien as any new, misunderstood species could be, and they had experienced some... uh, difficulties with being accepted into the Confederation. But everyone overlooked that most of their weirdness was mostly harmless, maybe even funny if looked at from the right perspective. Additionally, the rapidly expanding soul Collective had all but stabilized this entire sector of the frontier. It had been at least a hundred cycles since the last reported pirate raid. His musings was interrupted by the analyst screeching his forearm for attention. Had he found something? All eyes hastily skimmed the section of the data slate in front of him. Something. Something festival season. There's some human calendar year celebration. Earth-colored explosion. Christmas! A celebration. A season for giving. The spirit of Christmas is in the togetherness. It's in the thought to which you put into thinking about others. It's a selfless time where we take stock of what's important and become better versions of ourselves. The... Humans were celebrating each other? Major Nurses quickly called for his Passover, relief clear on his voice as he explained the misunderstanding. Detention drained from the command center. General Sinap, addressed the room, declaring that the event of false alarm, the Christmas miracle, as the humans might put it. There were a few nervous laughs as people began to pile out and back to bed, or more likely a stiff drink to ease the stress of the past few hours. Naturally, it fell to the General's trusted second to send out a report following the sector-wide all-clear alert, followed by some well-earned beverages. In his newfound isolation, Gnosis chuckled to himself. As far as human surprises go, this was the best one yet. A real gift of some peace and quiet around here for a change. And a whole soul season of it. He might even have to put in for some time off. A somewhat stressed Yertner sat in a station's communication console and supped his warm drink in nervous anticipation. Why had they cancelled the newly raised alert? Why did the report say nothing about the humans bettering themselves and colored explosives in the same paragraph? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1520 You'll never take us alive. Written by Space Paladin Fifteen. Honored panel of the Tenari officers, it is evident to us all why this court martial has occurred. The weight of failure falls heavily on my shoulders. I submit my testimony to you today, that you may understand the events that led to our disastrous campaign. My fate is in your hands and I will accept whatever judgment you see fit. It was an easy mission on paper. A Terran farming colony called Aru, and one of the fringes of the territory. It boasted few defense capabilities, and looked ripe for the taking. A plentiful harvest, enough to satisfy our army's needs on the Western Front had just occurred. The food is currently stashed away at a large warehouse complex, until it could be exported back to Earth. Confidence abounded in the planning room as we discussed our strategy. A simple ground occupation was all that we prepared for. First, our forces would capture the smaller farms outside of the main settlement. Then, we would storm the village and take the warehouse. There were only give or take a thousand Terran soldiers on planet, who I did not believe would pose any real threat to us. We were greatly superior force in both numbers and weaponry. The civilians were simple farmers, armed with rags and pitchforks. There shouldn't have been anything difficult about it. Minimal damage to the agricultural system was the utmost important, as the goal of the operation was to secure the food supply. According to our dossiers, the humans were well suited to manual labor, so they would make ideal Slaves. After our victory, the fathers would be forced to grow crops for us. Aru could supply our troops for many cycles. I motioned our progress through the reports sent from our ground commanders. The first night of deployment was a massive success. A small force of human soldiers met us at our landing site, but after a brief exchange of fire, they retreated. What a pathetic, cowardly display! I thought at the time. The mission could be wrapped up in no time. With the land outside of the city under our control, it was time to close in our main objective. There was one dirt road leading into town, cutting through the woodland that surrounded it on all sides. Our troops boarded armored vehicles and receded along the route. Not a sign of the Terran military anywhere. Just trees and dusty terrain. The distinct lack of opposition should have been the first sign that something was amiss. But the convoy was caught completely off guard by a high-pitched beeping sound, followed by a blast of enormous magnitude. The lead vehicle of our procession went up in a plume of fire and shrapnel, jarring and skewing its occupants. When the car behind it navigated around the wreckage, it too was blown to bits, then made it plain that the original explosion was not. An isolated event. The team radioed back to the command ship, requesting a scan of the road. We discovered that it was littered with crude explosives, presumably triggered by pressure or proximity. Driving to our destination would be impossible. That road was the only way in or out of the city by vehicle. The idea of aerial transport was tossed around, but human surface-to-air missile capabilities made it risky as well. So... I gave our soldiers the order to abandon their vehicles and travel by foot through the woods. And that is where the true horror began. You see, that was when the human soldiers were hiding. We had played right into their hands. They could survive out in the wilderness just fine, and they knew how to avoid their own traps. But we were not so lucky. The primitive devices picked off more of my men than I would like to admit— Within our first day out there, we already had numerous injuries and casualties. A sergeant wandered off on his own to scour for food and was only located hours later by a search party. He was hanging upside down from a tree, bound in rope net. It appeared that he had wrapped up so tight that the blood circulation to his brain had been cut off. Adrio set off to Jack potential campsite for hostiles and was found impaled on and spikes at the bottom of a pit. It appeared that the trap had been covered up, so that when our scouts crossed over it, the ground gave way beneath their feet. A simple, yet clever, invention. After that incident, word spread through our ranks quickly that everyone needed to watch their step. The humans themselves slunk around in the shadows, typically ambushing us under the cover of night. It became commonplace for the Tenari soldiers to sleep with their rifles in their beds, and all of our people were cautioned not to wander off alone. Even as we traveled by day, we learned to keep an eye on the sky. The humans loved to climb trees and snipe us from above. We eliminated any Terrans that we saw, but they seemed to always kill a few of us first. But... Of all the human tactics that were recorded in our field reports, the most terrifying were the aptly labeled suicide bomber. They would strap explosive vests to their bodies, then charge at groups of our soldiers. It was quite effective, sometimes claiming death counts in the hundreds. A people with such a disregard for their own lives, it was clear to me that we were dealing with a species that was truly mad. As our soldiers watched their comrades fall around them, we had a growing issue with desertion. A few even reportedly tried to defect to the human side. Morale amongst our forces was at an all-time low. Many ground commanders pleaded with me to order a retreat, but after suffering such heavy losses, I did not want us to leave Aru empty-handed. There had to be some compensation, something to justify this operation. Following my orders, the remaining troops pressed on to the city and snuffed out the last of the human soldiers. We'd achieved victory. But at what cost? Our ranks, which had once numbered 200,000 infantrymen, were now whittled down to 10,000. Many of the survivors were traumatized or maimed for life. With no Terran soldiers left to ward off the invasion, it seemed intuitive that the civilians would have to surrender. I wanted to see us claim the swirls of our hard-fought battle firsthand, so I asked one of our communication officers to stream footage live to headquarters. It was all on screen as they marched into the human settlement. All I could do was stare at the images before me, slack-jawed in disbelief. Fires raged all around our forces as they made their way through the fields and houses, Human civilians were rallying each other into a frenzy, dousing everything in sight with accelerants. What in the stars were they doing? Well, it was obvious what they were doing, but not why. My best guess is that they were motivated by pure spite, because there is no rational explanation for their behavior. The humans would rather see their home burned to ash than have it fall into our hands. I hope that whatever verdict of my trial is, we learn from what happened on Aru. A ground occupation of human territory must never be attempted again, because, unlike a normal species, they do not concede defeat, even when they know that it is hopeless, even when all is lost. They fight to their last breath, and they fight with a clever savagery that we can never match. I remember watching as our soldiers rushed towards the center of town. There was still the faint hope that we could salvage something from the warehouse. As clear as if it were yesterday, I could see the human farmer standing by himself in the street, watching the flames with a smile on his face. He turned to face the approaching troops and gestured towards the burning husk of a silo behind him. I'm sorry, were you guys looking for this? Better luck next time, I suppose. A Tenari officer raised his rifle at the civilian. I honor you, in the name of the king, to surrender to our supreme army immediately. The human brandished his tort and stared back defiantly. Other civilians joined in at his side, armed with any blunt objects that they could pick up. Surely, they knew that it would be a slaughter. And yet... They were ready to charge into battle anyways. You'll never take us alive! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1521 Story number one. The accountant written for use at work X. The three desperate beings sat at a small table in the break area of the 14th sub-level of the Commonwealth of the Orion Arm of the Milky Way, sentient species officers of financial reckoning and documentation. Fool was just over a meter tall and almost as broad as he was tall. His moist-looking mustard-yellow skin clashed with his cornflower-blue sweater vest. Kareen was almost his physical opposite. She was almost two meters tall and covered in a dull red exoskeleton. Two manipulator appendages on each of the upper sections of her thorax grasped each other and rhythmically grasped each other as they did when she was nervous. A blue furry paw poured hot tea into her refreshment container. The paw was attached to Bob. Bob was a small usarian but still outmassed the other two put together. Kareen, Jedi hated Bob. Drink your tea while it is hot and tell us whatever it is that has you so worked up. I'm not worked up, snapped Kareen, her mandibles making a sharp clicking noise as she spoke. Yeah, okay. Tell us what you're not so worked up about, that you just made Bob's back spines go limp, snarked full, in his wheezing voice. My spines did not go limp, exclaimed Bob. I know, said Phil. You know who got the section leader promotion. Tell me, and it wasn't that snot-headed, binary Steve. He is such a suck-up. Corrine looked a long sip of her tea from her drinking quill and exhaled. Fine, but you didn't hear this from me. The new boss is a human. Eh? Hey, what? Bob nearly yelled. Phil and Corrine both shushed him as the entire break area thrummed to look at the table. That's right, she laid eight more eggs, replied Kareen, a bit too loudly. Then made all of the co-workers quickly start ignoring their table. No one wanted to see more images of her grandchildren. Corrine lowered her voice to a harsh whisper. Yes, a human! Bob and Phil sat stunned for almost a full minute. Bob spoke first. You know what they say about them, right? They are all crazy Deathworlders who rip the appendages off the sentience till they get angry. Bob continued. Phil chimed in. Come on. You can't believe all those rumors and stereotypes. Just because they're relatively new to the Commonwealth doesn't mean that they are savages. Green clicked her mandibles rapidly. A nervous habit, she replied. I heard that they cook animals that look a bit like me alive and then break the exoskeleton with their bare hands and suck out their flesh. I think they call them Throaster. Uh, a lobster, corrected Full. Whatever, replied Kareen. I don't want a boss that thinks I look like lunch. Fine. Let's approach this like we would if we were investigating a suspicious budget report, stated Full. Let's go around the table and state what we know about the humans, then take the information line item by line item and research each's accuracy. Both Corinne and Bob indicated their agreement. I'll start. I've heard that they are crazy strong and fast for their size. Oh, and that they replace parts of themselves with even stronger cybernetic parts when they are damaged. That was two things. Phil rolls all four eyes. I read that they poison their brains with E-T-O-H, purines and parasympathematic alkaloids for recreation. I heard that they have a stomach acid that can dissolve ferric alloys and that they can expel it when upset. Dude, that's gross. My turn. And since we're talking about gross things, I saw on a documentary that they often expel methane and hydrogen sulfide from their waste sphincter. You're all making that up. You made Kareem's mandibles lock up, that one. I am taking her turn. I heard from my brother-in-law, you know, the bummer, that when they remodeled housing cells for humans, that they would use sprays of hot water to clean themselves. Water hot enough to denature your proteins and at a pressure that would knock down a plain grazer. I get to cook twice. You floor stains and my mandibles did not lock up. I was pausing to gather my thoughts. I heard that they are almost psychic and can communicate complicated information and instructions using subtle, ocular, facial and body movements. Even when they speak, they can make a sentence have a totally different meaning by slight changes in how their mouth parts form the words. When two of them are together, they can have a whole conversation without speaking and can speak such that no one else knows what they communicated. "'Hey!' Is uh, anyone writing all of this down? I thought you would use that edetic memory that you never shut up about. Are you two done? I'm going again. Based on the computer monitors that we've ordered, their vision spans almost 400 nanometers of the spectrum. As Corrine finished a sentence, a pale smooth hand set a thick walled container down on their table. The smell of scalding, roasting organic matter filled their senses. A voice behind Bob spoke. Uh, we also have excellent hearing. End of story. Story number two. The Sound of Music, written by Lostfall. Hey Chakra, I had a great idea for a cultural exchange, announced Jason, the human ambassador. Oh, what's that? Chakra asked, thankful for an exoskeleton that didn't allow him to cringe. The humans were always eager to share their culture. They also had an unquenchable thirst for knowledge, one that bordered on insanity. Barnaby's job was to stay on the humans' good side while protecting his race. While Earth was far from what his race would consider an inhabitable world, he couldn't help but find the humans that lived there fascinating. The longer he spent with them, the more of their duality he saw. They could be kind and ruthless. And it wasn't a difference between individuals, the extreme duality appeared to exist in all humans in many aspects from what he saw. The fact that they'd put forth the effort to find as comfortable of a city for him to live in, that said a lot about his host's capability to be compassionate. Baton Rouge was a warm and damp climate, much like his homeworld. Their insistence on trying to do cultural exchanges so far proved dangerous to other species showed how oblivious they could be. He couldn't help but appreciate their zeal, though. Jason had a huge smile on his face. So, uh, you know how our races can generally hear sounds over the same wavelengths. What about doing a cultural exchange of music? Chakra found it easy to like Jason, and with his happy, friendly manner. My race does not use heavy beats or spoken words in their music. We communicate with our mates via our songs, Chakra started. He had already learned the hard way that human music was potent on his species. Upon arrival, he discovered a radio station playing classic pop. The heavy rhythmic beat had a hypnotic effect. He had found that he could not move until the next commercial break. That and he had an undeniable urge to get jiggy with it, even though he had no idea what that meant. Jason didn't seem fazed by his response. Well, um, it's not a big deal. We have lots of different instrumental music. After a moment of consideration, he decided, Okay, Jason, but before we send anything I would like to review and ensure that I fully understand, he knew that he was taking a personal risk to protect these people. His caution was because he had been amongst the humans too long. Great! Jason seemed even happier. Let me pull up some videos on our internet. Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, here's a good one. Here's a good one. Uh, ever hear of a, a glass armonica? As Jason said this, a video was loaded on his tablet screen. It was showing a man sitting behind a device that he would never have thought was an instrument. This device seemed to have many different sized glass balls. They were mounted horizontally on a spindle. The man was dipping his fingers into a bowl of water. Ben Franklin invented that one. It's got 37 bowls. You should see the dance of the sugarplum fairies on it, Jason beamed. Very soon, Chakra was shocked to hear the most haunting music. It was almost like the worlds of his species, but off enough that he couldn't understand it. It was like it was telling a haunting and intriguing story. He found he wanted to know what it said. Chakra stood amazed as he watched more videos, each showing different instruments from orchestras, brass bands, calypso, bluegrass. Each was like a distorted voice of his people, telling a story that he couldn't quite understand. Some were emotional, fun, amusing, but none as haunting as the first instrument. The range and types of musical instruments he saw the humans playing was shocking. Some resembled instruments of his own people, but others were extremely exotic. Having an exoskeleton meant that they had nothing like brass bands. His race also lacked human dexterity, so string instruments were very different. As the last video ended, Chakra found himself staring at the screen. Jason, that was the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. I'm starting to think that this might, by the work, uh... It would show humanity in a different light, uh, They would see the beauty that you can create. How many musical groups do you think we could put together to tour my world and play each of these? I really would love to see the glass harmonica played in person. Even as he was finishing saying it, he could see Jason's smile fade a bit. Um... In, in person, huh? Uh, That that, that might be a bit hard. Jason was wringing his hands as he said it. Chakra knew that was generally not a good sign. Last time he had seen Jason act this way was when he asked about the human celebrity decorative lights. He was fascinated by their um, fireworks until he learned that they were full of explosives. He had assumed that they were harmless projections than when he first seen them. He still cringes when he imagined where the parts fell as they saw them over a major population center. What does that mean? Chakra could even hear the wariness in his own voice. Well, um, not many people play the glass harmonica anymore. There was some side effect. Only a few are still willing to play it, uh, Jason began to explain. We can get everything else, though. What do you mean by side effects? Chakra was already starting to worry. Humans were resilient. Anything that hurt them was something to worry about, to say the least. They think it was probably caused by how they made the poles, though others attributed it to the extended exposure to the sounds of the instruments. Dacian started to explain. He was trying to explain this to not cause concern, which ironically seemed to make it worse. Jason, friend, just tell me. Chakra tried to reassure him. Part of him could still hear the haunting music in his mind. Well, the musicians that played those started going insane, so uh, the instrument fell out of favor, and a few will play it or listen to much of it anymore, Jason finally said. Chakra stared in shock. He found himself letting loose a human expression. Damn it! Why do you humans have to weaponize everything? End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.